everybody, Eric Bischoff here, and have you heard about Strictly Business? Strictly Business is a brand new weekly series exclusively on adfreeshows.com. Join me and my co-host, John Alba, every Tuesday as we take a deep dive into the business of the professional wrestling business. And this is some straight-up business talk here. No fanboy nonsense. We discuss television contracts, advertising, licensing, and, of course, the highly debated ratings. So if you want an unfiltered, brutally honest, anti-fanboy understanding of the professional wrestling industry, well, Strictly Business is the series for you. And hey, if Elon Musk likes my tweets, and he did, you're going to love Strictly Business. Sign up now and listen at adfreeshows.com. Jim Crockett Promotions presents Ric Flair's Last Match, July 31st at the Nashville Municipal Auditorium. StarCast Weekend in Nashville, bringing wrestling companies together for one of the most unique cards ever assembled. Main evented by Ric Flair's Last Match. Tickets are on sale right now at rickflairslastmatch.com. And you can catch the show live streaming on pay-per-view and Fight TV for only $34.99. Ric Flair's Last Match. Walk in that aisle one more time for the last time. StarCast is presented in part by ProWrestlingTees.com. T-shirts designed and sold by over 2,500 pro wrestlers. By Lenny Bakken, certified financial planner. And by Powerbomb Pizza. Pizza crafted and sold by pro wrestlers. Powerbomb Pizza, powered by Kitsch Data. If you could change one thing about your home, what would it be? a new kitchen, a new master bath, maybe put in a pool. What if you could do it with no money out of pocket and cheaper monthly payments? Save with Conrad.com can help. And you can even skip your next two house payments. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. Save with Conrad.com. What's going on, 83 Weeks fans? I'm John Alba, and it's time for another edition of 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. I'm filling in for Conrad Thompson again this week. I had so much fun with Eric that he invited me back again. And could you really blame him? Eric Bischoff, it is so nice to see you, my friend. How are you this morning? Well, I'm good, but we need to clarify a few things. It's not like I had so much fun last week. I mean, last week was, we're talking about WCW in 1999, and there's nothing fun about WCW in 1999, especially for me. But we got through it, and I'm impressed that you were able to hang in there and get through it with me. So, yeah, we're going to give this one another try, and hopefully this one will be fun. Yes, and I had a lot of people throughout the week that were like, you were so mean to Eric, and I said... It was WCW 99. I'm sorry, man. I, I kind of had to bring the heat a little bit, but this one's going to be a much more positive episode 
because we're talking about Bash at the Beach 1997. And I know that's a very fond time for you and your tenure in wrestling. The year 1997, WCW was absolutely cooking. And that's what we're going to get into this week. But before we do, Eric, I want to bring this up. You know, you, you see that little ad free shows logo there beneath us. I actually had you hop on with me on ad free shows this week for our time limit draw show, which features Lash LaRue. And Lash does, for those of you who aren't following this, or if you're not a member of the ad free shows family, Lash does a show every month with me where he's, he, he draws caricatures. Now he's a cartoonist and he was drawing the moment where Hulk Hogan was revealed as the third man. And mean Gene Okerlin is interviewing him and you made a run and it was a surprise run and Lash had no idea. And I know it was a really emotional moment for both of you guys. And he expressed to you how much you meant to him and in, in his life. Uh, how special of a moment was that for you guys to share? Because he even texted me after Eric. He was like, "That's one of the coolest things that's ever happened to me." Yeah, it was. It was one of those moments. You know, I, of course, I remember Lash and in his time in WCW, but we never really got to be friends. We didn't get to know each other very well, and that's not unusual. Uh, it, at a time, you know, when WCW probably had 80 or 90 talents on the roster and I didn't get that a chance to get to know every one of them. So, you know, I hadn't seen Lash, you know, in person or even on video uh, since I probably last saw him in WCW. And wow. what, what was so emotional, I, I think what, you know, elicited the emotion you saw from me was Lash's sincerity. You know, I've, I've had a lot of people, express their gratitude and, and say, and I know they meant, I know people mean them generally, but there was just a, a level of uh, sincerity that just good. It got me. I have a heart. I'm a human. Um, and every once in a while, um, you know, I find myself in one of those moments, but it was great. And he's such a talented guy and it was fun, you know, watching him talk and draw all at the same time. It's like, I, I, it's just, he's, he's an amazing talent. And, but more than that, he's a really cool guy. He's a positive person and it was fun to, to interact with him. And like I said, especially hearing some of the kind words he had to say, it was, it was very cool. Lash LaRue is one of the nicest guys ever I've ever interacted with in wrestling. And he's immensely talented. You can go check him out at Lash can draw on Twitter and also his email if you want to buy one of his prints, lashwcw at aol.com. How about that? Still keeping the gimmick alive 20 plus years later. So is he is he selling that image that he drew on our show? So yeah, you can purchase any of those prints if you'd like. We we shared them to the ad-free show social media. We do the show every month. He has done some incredible caricatures. All right, so let's let's do a little deal here. And I don't know, I'll let <laughs> I'll let you and Lash figure out how to make it work. But anybody that buys that particular image, that, that artwork that Lash created on that show, will figure out a way. If you order it, um, I'll autograph it and get it back to you. How about you that? Figure out the logistics. Okay. You guys. But somebody smarter than me will figure that out. Okay. We're, we're going to look into that and then we'll put the information out on social media. I'll be, I'll be happy to, to autograph and date that particular. Uh, That's very cool. Art. Well, next month he's going to be drawing you. So, and it's going to be 
Ken doll, Eric Bischoff. We've already talked about it. Big flowing hair. It's it's going to be good. So check that out, adfreeshows.com, guys. And you can check out Eric Bischoff and I on Strictly Business every single week on adfreeshows.com. This past week, we talked about independent wrestling, which I, I don't think that was a conversation I was ever expecting to have with you. But I thought we had a great guest in Randy Carver, and it was a lot of fun hearing about some of your business plans that you had for indie wrestling at one time and even a very special independent show that you went to. I, I really enjoyed that conversation. Yeah, it was a fun show. It was a fun show. And I'm, I am still, you know, fascinated with the indie scene. I don't know fascinated may be a little strong, but you know, very interested in, it. I think there's a lot of potential there and it's fun to watch, man. It's fun to watch. It's the same reason, you know, here in Cody, you know, I've never played high school football. Um, my son didn't play high school football. I don't know anybody on the Cody high school football team, but I'll go to a couple games a year just to watch because it's the energy and the, just the vibe is so different and there's something, something really cool about it. And it's, it's the same thing with indie wrestling. These guys are just like, they're just taking their first step towards a dream. And inevitably some of them will go on to become huge stars in the industry down the road. And it's just fun seeing young talent reaching their first step and, 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 and getting booked on a show and having a match and getting a crowd to react to them. I kind of live vicariously through them, I guess. It's, it's a cool feeling. I know that feeling, and I've, I've often tried to describe it here on 83 Weeks. And um, there's something magic about the energy exchange between a performer and someone in the audience. And I think in any live performance, it's probably the same on Broadway. It, 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 it's when, or, or if you're a musician and you're in concert, when you, you're giving and you're receiving energy in a, in a different way that you can possibly experience that exchange as a performer in a live event. And it's, it's fun watching kids get that. For, I say kids. Some of them are young adults. Most of them are. But it's fun to watch someone, a performer, realize that energy exchange. Sometimes for the first time, sometimes they're still getting used to it. That's the part that I like about indie wrestling is it's not the action in the ring, although sometimes that's great, but it's just watching these young performers experiencing that magic um, at such an early stage in their career before they're jaded and cynical and bitter and all that shit that usually comes along with. And have a, a podcast talking about the glory days of pro wrestling like yeah. you do on 83 weeks. Well, that's uh it was a great conversation. Go check it out. Strictly business at freeshows.com. All right, Eric, let's not waste any more time. It's time to talk bash at the beach. 1997. This was one heck of a pay-per-view that many people still talk about. And it's 25 years since, and some would argue this is one of the biggest shows in WCW history. It went down June 16th, or rather, it went down the summer of, sorry, summer of 1997. And we start with the June 16th Nitro at the United Center in Chicago, where you guys draw 16,500 fans uh, with just about 14,000 of those paying for $218,285 gate with $112,000 in merchandise. This is the infamous show where Hulk Hogan and Dennis Rodman come out. They cut promos on Lex Luger and the Giant. And I think about this, Eric, 
And the first thing that comes to mind, Dennis Rodman at the United Center. This is the height of the Chicago Bulls dynasty. You could not have drawn this up any better. But what's unique about it is that he's a heel. What did you think of the response he was getting? Um, what did I think about the response? I mean, I expected it. You know, he's a controversial player. I mean, Chicago, you know, they loved him on the court, but a lot of Dennis's antics off the court. Um, I don't want to say they were polarizing because that's too strong a word, but there were, there were those people like me, even though I certainly didn't live in Chicago at the time and I wasn't necessarily a big basketball fan, but I love that outrageous over the top character. You know, I, I thought it was good for basketball. You know, it, it, anytime you have a, a colorful, I kind of, I hate to use the term out of the box, but you know, somebody that breaks the paradigm of what you would expect out of a professional athlete. I dig it. It just makes it interesting, but you know, I, I it, he got a great reaction. I don't remember. You know, he was being positioned as a heel, of course, but he was being positioned as a heel in a faction that although they were heels, it wasn't like the traditional heel formula. These were right badass cool heels that yeah people booed them and they got pissed off at some of the stuff that happened in the ring but every one of them would have cut off a body part for a chance to go hang out and have beers with the nwo after so it was a little different what did you think of dennis upon meeting him and talking to him about bringing him in to do a big time angle like this i did you know (laughs) When I first met Dennis, I was kind of, oh, this is, I don't know if this is going to work, you know, because Dennis is a, he's a unique individual. He's people and it's weird, you know, cause you talk about Dennis Robin, especially back in the you know, 90s. And he was, you know, wearing a wedding dress to a book signing and just doing all kinds of outrageous shit. Right. But he's really a shy person. He's uh, I, I, not an intro. He's if he's not an introvert, he's damn close to it. Um, and that can come off as stuck up, uninterested, arrogant, aloof, but it wasn't. Now, I didn't know that until after I got to know Dennis a little bit, and it didn't take long. But my initial impressions were, boy, I hope this works financially because just I don't feel the vibe here. I'm not feeling the connection just didn't get that feeling that he was really that into what he was doing. And of course that's, that's his demeanor. Um, But once I got to know Dennis a little bit, it took a bit, it took a while, but once I got to know Dennis a little bit, he let his guard down. And one of the nicest, generous, probably to a fault. If you read a little bit about, you know, what Dennis has gone through and and all that since becoming such a major star in the NBA, he lost a lot of money. He was hanging around with a lot of people that made sure he lost a lot of money. They had a great time, but they did. So at, at Dennis's expense. And part of this, because he's just such a generous guy to a fault, a little bit like Hulk Hogan in that respect. You know, one of the, and I think that's maybe, I don't know if I've ever thought about this before. In fact, I'm sure I haven't, but one of the, the two things that I say stand out to me about both Hulk Hogan and Dennis Rodman is 
they're both very generous people. I think Hulk has learned to protect himself from his own generous tendencies because he has been taken advantage of a lot. And so has Dennis a lot. And sometimes when people are inherently generous, giving open-minded people, um, and they're taking advantage of time after time after time, they tend to build a defense mechanism around them. And that, again, if you don't know them and you don't consider their background and their history and why they are the way they are, and you just come off as like, he's just a stuck up asshole. Not the case at all. And I learned that about Dennis. He's also a very intelligent guy. Mm-hmm. It's another thing that people just don't, unless you sit down and talk to Dennis and I'm not talking about wrestling or basketball. I'm just talking about life in general. He is a very, very intelligent guy, and he and he's he's articulate. And you wouldn't get that vibe from him unless you had a chance to spend enough time around him where he lets that guard down, and you really get to know him. And my first meeting with him, that guard was up, and I was a little eh, iffy about it. But shortly thereafter, I was like, "Wow, this is this was a great move." I mean, the dude became an unofficial ambassador to North Korea. So that should tell you that. Yeah, that one, that one, that, well, I don't know. <laughs> that's, that's, that may be taken a little far, but, um, but there again, you know, Dennis is, he is a very, very open-minded, non-judgmental person. Um, and in today's world, you think that would get a lot more respect, but back then probably not so much. Was there anyone pushing him on you? It was like, you got to give this guy a shot. You got to no. check him out. No, I mean, I mean, I got a phone call from Hulk. I was, I was actually going to a meeting at the airport Marriott in Atlanta. And I think I was meeting with Ric Flair for something. It was either Rick or somebody else. Um, but anyway, I, re- I remember I'm walking in and I get a phone call from Hulk. He says, man, you I told him, I said, I'm getting out of my car. I'm going to the Marriott. He goes, call me right back. So I call him right back. And he said, I just got a phone with Dennis Robin. And he's really interested in doing something. I really think we should do something with Dennis. And I thought, well, that's awesome. You know, I'm, He's been making headlines all over the place. That'd be great. And and I called Dennis's agent. At that time, it was uh, Dwight Manley. I think he was also representing Carl Malone at the same time. But anyway, I called Dwight. And, man, we worked it out. I think we worked that deal out. The, basic points of that deal. We worked out over the phone while I was getting ready to have a meeting with Rick Flair. It was a very simple one. So there was nobody pushing, you know, Hulk certainly advocated and made sure that I got to it right away. Cause Hulk knew me well enough to know that I'd say, okay, I'll, I'll give him a shout tomorrow. And maybe by tomorrow, I, you know, have forgotten or put it off or just not prioritize it. So he, Hulk really wanted me to prioritize it. And I did, and it worked out. I think it's impossible to over or understate just how big in pop culture the Chicago Bulls were at the time, too. They were in the middle of this massive run with Michael Jordan leading the way. And it's great to look back upon that because there are a lot of avenues out there. We saw The Last Dance did it a few years ago. And maybe even some podcasts as well, because if you're the type of person who's always thinking about new business ideas or wondering what's the next side hustle that I should spin up, we've got a podcast recommendation for you here at A3 Weeks, and that is My First Million. The show's hosts, Sean Perry and Sam Parr, have each built eight-figure businesses and sold them to Amazon and HubSpot. Each week, 
They brainstorm business ideas that you can start tomorrow. These can be side hustles that make you a few grand a month, a big billion dollar idea, or anything in between. And I bring this up, Eric, because one episode I loved in particular was episode 158. And that's where Sam and Sean explained how to make millions. You're going to love this idea. Ready? By buying Michael Jordan's house and turning it into a museum. How about that? I, I thought you were going to say Airbnb, but a museum would be even better. <laughs> think, of the, think, think of the merchandising opportunities. Well, if you love any of our business content that we do on this show or maybe on Strictly Business, I think that is an episode that you'd love to hear about. Eric always talks about the beachfront property, but why have a beachfront property when you can have Michael Jordan's house as a museum? They also chat with founders, celebrities, and billionaires, and they get them to open up about business ideas that they've never shared before, like their conversation with Rob Deerdick in episode 224, where you hear about a guy who has built a $400 million media empire who's been tracking every second of his day for the last decade. So make sure to check out My First Million. That's My First Million, F-I-R-S-T, on Apple's podcast, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Entrepreneurs, Eric, you love that stuff. That's right up your alley. Yeah, it is. I've always, you know, I've, I guess I've always been an entrepreneur. I re- remember hearing a story as I was a kid growing up because I don't remember actually doing this. But my mother told me a story about how when I was about five years old, I ran away from home, which means I went around the block and um, I collected pop bottle or soda soda bottle caps because people would buy a bottle of pop or soda, whatever you call it, pop the top, just throw it away. So I'd go around and I'd collect all of these different pop bottle caps that were laying around convenience stores and on the side of the road and in parks and stuff like that. And then I took them door to door, door to door and sold them. And, you know, when a five-year-old kid comes up and knocks on your door and tries to sell you something, what are you going to do? You're going to buy it. So like my mom finally found me around the block and I had like 75 cents on me. I was selling pop bottle caps for a nickel a piece or two cents a piece or something. She found me. I, I had earned 75 cents before I was five. <laughs> it was awesome. Can't say I'm surprised by that. You should go check out this podcast. We endorse them here at 83 Weeks. That's my first million on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Title Transference aired October 27, 2004. Director James Marshall, writers Todd Slavkin, Darren Swimmer. I really like this episode, and I'm surprised that you don't like it as much as you thought you did. I actually respect your opinion more than I respect my own in general. (laughs) (laughs) When you say things are good and I check them out, they are. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen. And uh, yeah, man, I just think that when you're talking about those those Bulls teams, you have to put into context how popular they were. They were on SportsCenter every single week. Rodman is appearing on The Tonight Show. There's just so much going on that helps get WCW out there in the mainstream. And I would envision that by putting him in a main event scene, you guys must have had a fair degree of trust in, in Hulk Hogan to help get him through that. Because a lot of times today, Eric, we see celebrity crossovers. Very rarely are they in the main event scene. Why were you confident that it could work there? Well, for a couple of reasons, you know, first and foremost, you can work a celebrity like Dennis, one who's an athlete, 
uh, you can work them into a main event and camouflage their lack of experience. In some cases, the fact that they're just really not comfortable, you know, up there in their underwear <laughs> in a main event doing things that they've never really done before. That's, you know, that's overwhelming for a lot of even great athletes. It's, it's an adjustment. But again, you know, Dennis was so laid back that it didn't seem to face him. And I, because he didn't seem to be overwhelmed with the opportunity or he wasn't nervous about it. And I did have a lot of confidence in Hulk. I, I did know that, you know, Hulk's worked with a lot of celebrities in the past. Hulk knows how to make someone look good. And I knew that we could camouflage whatever shortcomings Dennis had, but it became pretty apparent early on that, you know, we weren't going to have to work around as many shortcomings as we thought. And the other thing that I, you know, I should have brought this up a moment ago, you know, to be fair and clear about this, I don't think Dennis was that interested in coming to WCW. I don't think he really cared. He really wanted to work with Hulk Hogan and Hulk Hogan happened to be in WCW. Now, once Dennis got there and got to know everybody, of course, Randy was there and there was a lot of other people there that Dennis really uh, enjoyed being around and, and he, in his own way, probably looked up to because uh, Dennis was a wrestling fan first and foremost. He dug, he dug the industry. Um, but I knew that I believed I should say that Hulk would be able to really get Dennis's head where it needed to be. And I wasn't concerned at all about his athleticism. It's just a question. You know, let's not put him here's the, here's the risk. I'm sorry, man. I've had a lot of coffee prepping for this. So I'm going to talk your ear off <laughs> the risk. When you bring in somebody like Dennis, who isn't intimidated, who is an athlete, um, who can pick up on things pretty quick. The real risk is letting them do too much because a, they want to, and they probably can, but the probably is a little bit of a problem because when you're out there, when the show is live, you know, you take someone like Dennis who could do so many things so well, so quickly, and you allow them to do a little bit more than you probably should. One really bad botch, one one moment in the match is 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 enough to put a sour taste in people's mouths. And again, I've used this phrase before. You can you can slow a fast horse down, but you can't speed a slow horse up. And Dennis was a real Dennis was a racehorse. He's a fast horse. And the real challenge with a guy like, a, like Dennis, who's a fast horse, is slowing them down and preventing them from doing too much where they overexpose. And I knew that Hulk could manage that process with Dennis. There are a lot of periphery things going on in WCW at this time as well. Business is clearly doing well. Things are on the upswing. The product is hot. So you're trying some new things out. And the observer notes a couple in particular, the first being that you are starting to work with more Lucha Libre wrestlers and bringing them in. And there's indication that there's been a little trouble getting them booked and getting the timing right. But You've also had a problem where guys are arriving late to arenas for shows and tapings, and it's forcing some changes on house show cards. And there's a little bit of chaos there, but it's said that you really are trying to put a presence on bringing some Lucha Libre talent in. Is there any truth to that? And what was your mentality with Lucha Libre performers in 1997? 
Well, I think it's pretty obvious. We put a lot of effort and money um, and resources creatively into creating the cruiserweight division of which the Lucha Libre talent was such an incredibly important part. So, yeah, I was actively, aggressively um, to the point of almost being obsessed about it, trying to really establish the cruiserweight division in general. And, and the issues with the, a lot of the Lucha talent was logistics. Part of it because a few of them, maybe, uh, I don't know what percentage of them, but a small percentage of them spoke English. And a larger percentage didn't. I don't speak Spanish and neither did anybody uh, in my office, uh, at least that was in a role to help, you know, coordinate travel and things like that. So that was a bit of a problem. Culturally, it was also a bit of a problem because keep in mind, a lot of the Lucha guys early on were also working for wrestling promoters in Mexico. We were trying to balance, you know, the two of those. And while they were under contract for me, um, I did allow them to to work for you know other promoters. I wanted them to be able to maintain those relationships. Sometimes some talent took advantage of that. Um, so it was it was a rough ride in the beginning until we got a lot of that stuff ironed out. Conan was instrumental in helping to iron a lot of that stuff out, but it was a it was a persistent problem that plagued a lot of the lucha guys throughout their career in WCW. They just couldn't remember who they worked for any given day. There was also an interesting foray on June 28th, 1997, and it was almost a battle of Los Angeles, if you will. You guys ran against the WWF. Uh, You guys were at the Forum. They were at the Pond in Anaheim. And you called this show on TV, the show Eric Bischoff doesn't want you to see. And you actually did live internet audio commentary of it instead. And not a whole lot happens at this show. Chris Jericho wins the Cruiserweight title from six, but that's really about it. But I think the idea of running an audio-only show in 1997, it, it feels like that's trying to do something different and break outside the box. And I'm not sure if wrestling fans were ready for that at the time, but I commend the effort. What do you remember about that? That was really um, the late Bob Ryder. Mm. Um, that was Bob's idea. He came to me with that idea. I liked the idea. Keep in mind in 1997, the internet was just beginning to become a thing. You know, I mean, it had been, it had been around obviously for a little bit, but it was emerging and there was all these different ideas uh, and ways of integrating it. Again, you got to put yourself back in that, that point in time when people thought the internet, and it, it has, wasn't a wrong thought, but people were, this was the, this was the internet boom, man. Everybody was scrambling. To, it's kind of like, you know, NFTs were about a year ago. NFT was going to be the, NFTs were going to be the next big thing that's going to change everything. And everybody was scrambling to figure out how to get into the NFT business. Well, you know, that slowed down just a little bit, you know, probably 5% of the people in the NFT business are making 95% of the money. But back in 97, man, everybody was scrambling. How do we, how do we include the internet into what we're doing into our business, not just with wrestling, but with everything. And yeah, we tried different things, but that was really Bob Ryder's idea. That wasn't my idea. I just supported it. It's a really unique presentation of wrestling because it's audio only, which means you have to have a play-by-play guy 
that is extremely descriptive. Just like if you're listening to a baseball game on the radio, you have to use their words as imagery. And thinking about that as a presentation for professional wrestling, I don't think we've really ever seen that done. And and I don't think it's really been done since. It's very different. You know what? And it should be done. There's some, and again, I, I realize I say these things and people hear them and they react to them because you're not inside my head. And I don't always do a good job of explaining myself completely when I say certain things, but I, I, I think one of the things that's lacking in wrestling today across the board, I'm not picking on any one company. I really don't like the play by play at all. Why is that? Because it's not play by play. You, in a in a case of AEW, when I've dropped in on it, um, it's three color guys. I don't like that. I want someone to describe to me what it feels like to be in that arena. I want a play by play guy to make me close make make it a, possible for me to close my eyes and imagine that I'm in that arena and close my eyes and watch the match as it's being called and be able to see it in my head. To me, that's a play-by-play person. A color person is exactly that. You know, the play-by-play guy sketches everything out. He's he's taking you through what's happening in real time, but your color person fills in some color and some background or some information or a perspective that adds layers to the action that's happening in front of you. And it used to be that way. It it really did. But over the years, I think in the last 10, especially maybe more 15, 20, probably we've really gotten away from that. And if you, you listen now, it's nobody's calling the action. They're just giving you their opinions and their, their, their advancing story. And that's part of the, the deal. I get that but I just don't hear real play-by-play anymore. And I, to this day, one of the reasons that I, I you know, fell in love with Sean Pendergast uh, is I love listening to people, even if they're talking about a subject that I'm not interested in, you know, I love hearing knowledgeable people who are good sports people paint a picture for me that makes me interested in something that I wasn't interested in before. There's a there's a uh, a sportscaster here local you know Cody Wyoming, but I listen to him. I listen to him call girls basketball. Again, I'm not a basketball fan, and I don't know any girls that are on the high school basketball team. But if there's a basketball game, I'll listen to him call that game because he does such a great job of making me feel like I'm there. I miss that. I love old, you know, when you go back and you listen to, you know, I remember listening to, um, I think it was Muhammad Ali and Sonny Liston when that fight took place. I listened to it with my dad and it was magic, man. I love radio. I I really do. And listening to, and I don't know who who was the play-by-play guy. It might've been Howard Cosell. I don't know, but whoever it was, did such a fantastic job of making me feel like I was there and I connected with it. And I, I miss good traditional play by play. Tell me what 
tell, tell me what the, what the arena smells like. I want to know that. Make me feel like I'm there instead of three guys giving you their opinions or trying to advance story or trying to get themselves over, which is another big issue. Yeah. Um, I miss that. I think, I think what wrestling would be better served if, if there was a great play by play person along with a great color commentator. I, I think three man boots, not even just in wrestling, but in traditional sports too, have really hampered quality play by play because there's just too much traffic going on. There's too many voices and then some booths are for people that affects it. And I, and I can only say this from my personal experience, having I've called games on ESPN, I've called games on Fox sports and I've done play by play for pro wrestling and pro wrestling is just another animal, Eric, because you do have to get stories over to a degree. Whereas with other pro sports that's not really something you have to worry about but the descriptiveness and creating that imagery especially if it's audio man you're so dead on about that and i do feel and like it, it's kind of a lost art it, it, and it can be done you know mm-hmm. when i first started doing play-by-play i was trained basically by Vern Gagne and and mike shields and they were really i don't want to say strict but they were firm about how I presented and how I did play by play. And I remember Mike Shields told me, because Eric, you have, you're a fan and you have the best seat in the house. I want you to describe what you're seeing as if you're describing it to someone who, who has no vision, has no sight, allow a blind person to enjoy this product. And I approached it from that perspective now you, I'm well aware that you have to advance story, and that is different than a real sport. But it's not that difficult to do. It isn't. It is an art. It's not a science. It is an art, and you have to know when to back off. You have to balance calling the action and being caught up in the moment. That's another big thing: is being caught up in the moment in a genuine way. Um. And, and feeling like you're a fan at ringside who has the privilege of being able to describe what's going on to the rest of the world who isn't in your seat. Um, but you can, and I did, effectively, not only in AWA as I was learning that craft, but even in WCW, um, not trying to pat myself on the back here, I, I wasn't the greatest play-by-play person around. I certainly was not. Uh, Jim Ross was. Tony was much better than, than I ever was, but I was able to bring that energy from a fan's perspective um, and, and be descriptive. If you go back and listen to some of my play by play, it's, you know, by today's standards, it's probably obnoxious because of the way I called the match. I, I created as much energy as I could in, in, in calling the things that were really happening, but there were other people, you know, in the booth with me to help advance story. I could ask questions over color comment. That's another thing. I want a color commentator who's actually been a wrestler. Yeah, that's the point, right? I don't want a color commentator who's not been a wrestler or another color commentator who's only been an announcer. I don't want that. I want somebody that can tell me from, from a wrestler's perspective what somebody's thinking in the ring or what they might be thinking in the ring or what their strategy is or what their strategy might be and why it's working or why it's not working from a wrestler's perspective. I do not care what John Alba's perspective is, or I don't care what my perspective is when it comes to that. I want to hear from a player 
Yeah. I want to hear from a guy that, or a girl that's been there and done it. And that's the other thing that I think that's missing a little bit. You know, if you go back and you listen, I, I used to love McMahon and, and Ventura. That's now, so McMahon bad. wasn't my idea of a great play-by-play guy because he also did a little bit too much color commentary. A lot of showmanship. Yeah, a lot of showmanship. And that, that Vince's commentary took me out of the moment, but Jesse always brought me back in hmm. because he was credible and believable. I wanted to hear what Jesse Ventura had to say. Yeah. Because he's been there and done that. Vince McMahon hadn't. So that, that there we go. I, I go off on that a lot. No, I, I think it's such an important thing. It. It's so it's just not touched on very, very well. I think broadcast presentation of wrestling is just massively important. And the voices that you mentioned, Shivani and Ross, without the two of them, I don't think the Attitude Era has the same soundtrack and same memorable moments without the quality of those two guys. So uh, maybe that's an episode. You mean, you, you, you mean the Nitro Era? The you Nitro. said the Attitude Era. I'm sorry. You meant the Nitro Era. The Monday Night Wars. How's that? Right. Well, you do not call that the Attitude Era. Okay. That 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 era started and was created solely because of Nitro and the success of Nitro. That is the Nitro Era. That is not the Attitude Era. How I'm dare an, you? I'm a New York guy. What can I say? But uh, we're talking about great imagery, though, Eric, and a, a great place for great imagery is the imagery on your shirt, because this episode is brought to you in part by ProWrestlingTees.com. T-shirts designed and sold by more than 2,500 pro wrestlers, Sting, Macho Man, Stone Cold Steve Austin, CM Punk, so many more. And if you're looking for premium wrestling merch, you can get to ProWrestlingTees.com. Support wrestling legends from the past and independent wrestling stars of the future with more than 100,000 products shipped worldwide. And when you order from Pro Wrestling Tees, all profits go directly to the wrestlers or their families. And you can visit ProWrestlingTees.com today. And I got this wild add-on here. Eric, you ready for this? Sure. Because Pro Wrestling Tees isn't just putting t-shirts on your back now. They're also feeding you with Powerbomb Pizza, powered by Kitsch Data. Powerbomb Pizza is pizza crafted and sold by pro wrestlers. How's that sound to you? Do you do? Are you a pineapple on pizza guy? Because I'm going to judge you pretty hard based on your response here. I, I, I absolutely not. Okay. Good. Absolutely not. That that is that is it, it's it's borderline sinful in Agreed. my opinion. Agreed. There should be a law against it because you're destroying culture. You know, when you decide you're going to destroy pizza and you're, you're going to just absolutely turn what has been such an important part of our culture here in the United States since the early fifties, I think late forties, early fifties, if you go back and learn about the history of pizza in this country and then to, to just in such an abominable way, destroy the legacy and the integrity of such a fantastic product that in part, you know, part of this country was built upon pizza. Very much. And so. to put pineapple on it, who came up with that? Who Brutal. came up with that? Brutal. But if you are one of those hatest citizens that love pineapple on pizza, I'm sure you could get it. Through Powerbomb Pizza. It's the first delivery-only pizzeria with over 30 locations that combines wrestling with handcrafted classic pizza recipes. All profits go directly to the wrestling legends you support, such as Mick Foley, 
Rowdy Roddy Piper, Bret Hart, Eddie Guerrero, and many more. So you can order yours on Uber Eats or visit PowerBombPizza.com today. And we thank them for sponsoring 83 Weeks. Going to go get some pizza today now. All right. Hi there. Sorry for the interruption, but are you enjoying this show on Google Podcasts? You should know that the Google Podcasts app is going away this spring. That's right, going away, gone, as in no longer available. You can still enjoy this show elsewhere, though. Try out Spotify or Amazon Music, or maybe TuneIn is more your style. Whatever app you switch to, be sure to follow so you never miss the next episode. And thanks for listening, wherever you listen. Cool little thing I want to hit on here, because I don't think this is talked about much. In the run-up, to the Vegas Nitro, Meltzer would report this. WCW is still working on Mike Tyson appearing at the Las Vegas Nitro, but with his fight two days earlier, it probably won't be a definite until the last minute. How deep were you in talks with Mike Tyson here? Because if he shows up on Nitro before he shows up on WWF programming, we might be talking about a totally alternate timeline here. It was a figment of Meltzer's imagination. No truth whatsoever. Zero truth. I never had one conversation with Mike Tyson or a Mike Tyson representative. I don't know. And again, people wonder why I go off on what's his name as often as I do and why I trash him as hard as I do. And this is a perfect example of that. That's it's not true. It's just not true. I don't know how else to respond to it. Would and it be possible that one of Tyson's reps would be feeding him that information to try to make something happen. Sure. But then why didn't he, conf- why didn't Dave sure. pick up the phone and call somebody and say, Hey, is this true? Sure. No, he doesn't want to do that. He wants to go out there and push it and put it in his dirt sheet. And it didn't matter if it was true or not. It would be interesting to people who don't know any better. And I, I, I just, I think that's really, I just don't have any respect for people that don't have any integrity. And Dave Meltzer has zero integrity. He's a goof. He was born a goof. He grew up a goof. He's still a goof. And he's trying to find his way in the world by inserting himself into some in, in industry he really doesn't know anything about. He does from a, from a historical perspective. He, he studies it. He writes about it. He thinks about it. He talks about it. But he's never done it. You know, I'm a fan of the Rolling Stones, but I can't. I can't, I can't take Mick Jagger's place. doesn't matter if I've been a fan since 1965 and I know everything about the band and I could recite the, a biography on each one of the band members. It doesn't matter. I'm just a fan, and that's all Meltzer is, but he tries to portray himself as something beyond that, and that's where I, I lose my shit with him. This is a perfect example. Just like Mabel was going to be, there was discussions about having Mabel be the third man. I shit you not. You know, people think that that's a joke or a rib or, you know, I'm just having fun. It's the truth. And I called Meltzer out on that. And Meltzer said, and, and he, he reacted on social media after I called him out on it. And, and he said, well, you know, Sean Waltman told me. Sean Waltman wasn't in WCW. I mean, come on, do a little bit of work. Just a little bit. I just found it fascinating because I never heard that before that. Conrad is the one I never heard it either. Conrad is the one that brought it up when we were doing a show. 
You know, then a Meltzer reporter, you know, like Mabel is going to be the third. I said, what the fuck? What? And, and then I reacted. And of course, Dave then responded. And I don't remember what his exact words were. I'm obviously paraphrasing here, but essentially put it on Sean Waltman. Yeah. And I went, wait a minute. Sean Waltman wasn't in WCW at that time. So you're, you're, you're sourcing someone who's not anywhere near it and, and putting it out there. It's just such bullshit, but you know, people, you know, the dirt sheet universe, you know, likes to feel like they know something about what's going on behind the scenes in the industry. And they rely upon people like Dave Meltzer to do it. And I want to make another thing really clear here because I shit all over the dirt sheets and I don't think I do it enough. <laughs> I, or, or, or as eloquently <laughs> as I should. But that doesn't mean that I I have an axe to grind with a lot of other people that cover wrestling. I I don't. I read them. You know, I'll go to Wrestling Inc. if I want news. No, I I'm careful about what I think is probably true or not. It's not like they're saints when it comes to this stuff because they're reporting what they're hearing or what other people have reported. They're aggregating stuff. I get that. But for the most part, I, I respect what they do. Uh, Wade Keller, Pro Wrestling Torch. I used to burn Wade as much as I burned Dave. But Wade evolved. Wade is much more credible now than he was back when I was busting his chops often. Because he quit editorializing and presenting it as fact. And that's my issue with Dave. Dave, Dave has a lot of opinions, which he's welcome to. And I'm, and, and I'm, I understand why people are willing to pay to, to hear his opinions. That's fine. But when you, when you lose sight of facts versus opinion, that's when you lose me. And Wade Keller does a good, great job. Uh, Mike Johnson, um, PW insider have a lot of respect for him. Why? Because these guys have called me to confirm or deny or get a comment on stories that where my name has come up. Now, once they do that, if they choose to go forward with that story or not, I don't, I don't have a problem, but if you don't even make the effort to try to determine whether or not what you're hearing is fact or fiction, at that point you go on a list and, and really Dave is the one he's the most guilty and there, you know, there are others out there on less significant sites, but there are a lot of good sites out there. There, there really are. Uh, Jason Powell, another example. Good dude, honest, has integrity. Dave Shearer, also. I haven't always gotten along with Dave. I've often been very disappointed in some of the things that he's, you know, said when covering me or something I was in the middle of, but still makes the effort to confirm or deny. And Dave Meltzer doesn't because he's a punk. <laughs> you and I did. You and I did an hour-long episode on wrestling media literacy on Strictly Business. So there's a, another plug there. Adfreeshows.com. That was one of my favorite episodes we did, and you should all go check that out. Where Eric went into the weeds, if you will, talking about that. I just found that interesting because, to me, it's very clear that this is someone from Tyson's camp feeding him that information. Because as we know, Mike Tyson would end up on Raw six months later. So someone was putting feelers out about Mike Tyson wanting. So to in other words, what you're saying is Dave is a convenient tool. I'm he's, not justifying. He's, he's, a, he's a useful idiot. I'm not justifying it. I'm just saying to me, as I read that 
that's how that tracks. So you're agreeing with me that he was a useful idiot. I think he should have someone reached out. If he, did not reach out. if he did not reach out to you, he should have reached out to you 100%. Because um, he was a useful idiot. <laughs> you, John, you're going to have to agree with me at some point. When the facts are right there in front of you, you have to kind of just step through the, 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 the internet wrestling fog and go, yeah, that he's a fucking useful idiot. Eric's right. I view Dave through a little bit of a different lens, but I have no problem calling out somebody when I feel they did not do their job properly. And if All that right. well, case, that's, that's as aggressive as you're ever going to get. So we'll let it go with that. <laughs> we got a couple debuts around this time too. Uh, the first being Raven. He comes into WCW around this time. And the other being a significant one, and that's the former Mr. Perfect, Kurt Hennig. Uh, both of these guys come in around this time. I, I went back and I watched. They didn't get huge responses, but it, it's clear that there's some plans for both of them. I actually just did an episode with Raven on DDP Snake Pit, which you should all go check out. He's a very well-spoken and intelligent guy, and he has a lot to offer. Uh, what was the mentality behind bringing both of these guys in around this time? Well, Kurt, I, you know, I was a huge fan of Kurt Hennig before I even got into the business. You know, I remember you know early Kurt Hennig in AWA. And I was just a fan of his work. I remember Kurt Henning with Scott Hall in the AWA uh, before I ever broke into the business. And I was a big fan of both Hall and, and Henning in the AWA. Kurt Henning was someone who I didn't go to high school with Kurt. Actually, my wife did. <laughs> Mrs. B did. Um, but, you know, Robinsdale High School, I went to Minnetonka High School. We're, you know, in the same athletic conference. Uh, we're 12 miles down the road, you know, apart from each other. And Kurt had a lot of, we had, we had mutual friends. Let's put it that way. So I didn't know Kurt when he was in high school or even shortly after high school, but I, we had mutual friends. So I certainly knew of Kurt Henning. Um, but being, I was such a fan of his in the AWA and obviously he did well in, in WWE. Uh, I, when the opportunity came to get Kurt on our team, man, it was like, hell yeah. I love Kurt Henning's work. I love Kurt Henning's work. I think today it still stands up from a psychology point of view. Go back and watch young Kurt Henning with Nick Bockwinkle. It's amazing. It's just a work of art. Kurt, Kurt was an amazing performer. He, he got it in his own way, you know, like a lot of young talents do sometimes personal issues and, maybe not focusing as much as they should have on what they should have been focusing on, but he was a great guy to hang around. I love, I love being around Kurt. And I, more than that, I really, really respected his work with Raven. I, that, that was different. You know, I was reluctant to bring him back. Uh, I, and it wasn't a personal thing. You know, I, I'd known Raven uh, when he was Johnny Polo, I think in WCW and, tro you know, traveled with him. He was friends with Paige. So there was a time or two when we traveled together. Um, just didn't click with him. Not not that I didn't like him or not that I disliked him, but you just, you know, some people you just vibe with and some people you don't. It's a chemistry thing. And I, like I said, I never, I never clicked with him. I never got it. Uh, he was a great performer. He was good, not a great performer. He was a good performer. Um, but when it was time to bring him back, I did so kind of, you know, with one eye open and one eye keeping, you know, a lookout, you know, 
I just didn't feel, I didn't feel his character and it became even more apparent. You know, I just didn't like that dark brooding, you know, Pearl jam kind of depressed, miserable character. I didn't feel, I, I got it. It was interesting. And I know people felt that way sometimes internally, but to try to build a story out of that, I, I just didn't see it. You know, he wasn't a heel to me with that kind of character. He, he wasn't a baby face. He was just this dark brooding character. And I, I couldn't find the entertainment value in it. This segment of 83 weeks is brought to you by Zen nicotine pouches, the simpler way to experience nicotine satisfaction and enjoy lasting change on your terms. Zen nicotine pouches are a fresher, simpler way to enjoy nicotine that's helped millions of people achieve lasting change by offering smoke-free and spit-free satisfaction. I don't know about you, man, but there's been times in my life where I needed to make a change. Mrs. B reminds me of that all the time. And whether it's diet and exercise or just the way you go through life and show up every day, sometimes you just, you know you need to make a change, but you're not quite ready. Right? I mean, I'm sure a lot of smokers and dippers out there, they can relate. You know you got to make that change, but it's got to be the right timing and you need the right help. And Zen understands there isn't one right time to make a change for everyone. Everybody's timeline is a little bit different. Everybody's on their own journey. That's right. So whenever you feel like you're ready to take the first step towards change, Zen will be there for you with the right strength, the right flavor at the right time. And if you're thinking about making a change and want to learn more today, check out Zen Nicotine Pouches at Zen.com. That's Z-Y-N.com. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. I always thought he could cut a pretty entertaining promo, though. I, I Definitely had the ability to. I, I agree with that. I always thought he was pretty captivating, not the type of promo that would put you to sleep, but... I'll say this, Eric, if you do come across any promos that put you to sleep, well, science tells us that the best way to achieve and maintain consistent deep sleep is by not listening to a bad pro wrestling promo, but by lowering core body temperature. Temperature controlled sleep repairs muscle after a hard day's work and improves cognitive function. Lord knows I need that. So you can always start your day feeling sharp and alert. And that's why we want to talk to you about chilly sleep which makes customizable climate-controlled sleep solutions that help you improve your entire well-being. Man, Chili Sleep, they've been a longtime supporter of our podcast here. Erica, what can you say about them? Lifesaver for Mrs. B and I. Uh, when we built our house here in 1998 in Wyoming, we decided we didn't have to spend the money on central air conditioning. Because even though, for example, yesterday it was 98 degrees here, Mrs. B and I jumped on a Harley, drove up to Red Lodge, hung out, saw a few friends, had lunch, got back home. It's still 94 degrees at 8 o'clock at night, no air conditioning. And there was no breeze at all, which is unusual in Wyoming. Typically in Wyoming, it'll go up to 80s and the 90s, but at night it goes down to the 50s, the 60s. So we open up all the windows, let all the cold air in, sleep great, shut the windows in the morning. and Usually the house would stay pretty cool all day long, but when it gets up into the mid nineties, high nineties, not so much, but chilly sleep, man, it doesn't matter. That bed is nice and chilled when you get in it. So even though it's hot outside, we don't have air conditioning, still sleep 
really comfortable because I sleep much better when I've just got, it's a little chilly, man. I need to like <laughs> throw that comforter over the top and snuggle up underneath that. And chilly sleep makes it happen even when it's hot outside. I love that. It does. It makes the Uller and Cube Sleep Systems hydro-powered temperature-controlled mattress toppers that fit right over your existing mattress to provide your ideal sleep temperature. These luxury mattress pads keep your bed at the perfect temperature for deep sleep, whether you sleep hot or you sleep cold like Eric Bischoff does. They're designed to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and give you the confidence and energy you need to power through your day and if you want to team up with them well we're going to help you do that head on over to chillysleep.com forward slash 83 weeks to learn more and you can save 30 percent off the purchase of any new cube or Uller sleep system this offer is available exclusively for 83 weeks listeners and only for a limited time that's chili c-h-i-l-i sleep.com slash 83 weeks to take advantage of our exclusive discount and wake up refreshed every single day man you got no air conditioning out there nope that's, that's bold nope that you know bold. and it's only it only comes up in conversation about four or five times a year during the summer when mrs beale look at me and go huh no don't need central air huh don't need it right <laughs> and you say no because we got chili sleep but we got chili sleep now so we're good chili <laughs> sleep has got me off the hook i love it goodness i love it uh, so let's go back to Hennig here for a second. The Observer reports the original plan for Hennig was to be Diamond Dallas Page's partner on the pay-per-view turn on him and wind up with the NWO. The plan was also for Raven to join the NWO and the angle with Conan to also lead to him, him joining the NWO. Because that would be too much at once, at least some of it will probably go down differently. Any truth to any of that? Um, so three people joining the NWO at once. No. No. Not, I mean, I'm not going to, again, this is, this is where it gets difficult, you know, to comment on what Dave Meltzer wrote because so much of it, you know, so much of it was just complete bullshit. Like the Mike Tyson story, some of it, there was a small grain of truth or fact within this bigger story that was all made up or a figment of Meltzer's imagination. Um, could any of those conversations have taken place at some time just in the, in the course of riffing creative by that? I mean, eight or 10 people sitting around a room going, what if we do this? What if we do that? What do we do this? You know, you'll do a, you'll, you'll do a couple hundred what ifs before you come up with one that you're going to actually do right and ex execute. So could any of those conversations possibly have taken place in a what if kind of riffing scenario. Yeah, sure. Was there a plan? No, never got that far. Makes sense. Again, getting information from all different parties too. And that's probably where all that chatter comes from. Now he does say that shortly after this, Mike Tyson did come to the building in Las Vegas and that he was supposed to be a surprise, but decisions were, made all around that it was in everyone's best interest for him to not be around. So is that, crazy. that completely fabricated? You're saying, Oh my God. So Mike oh. Tyson never showed up once by no. WCW show. And if he did, I didn't know about it. Cause I would love to have met Mike Tyson back then. I've never met Mike Tyson yet. He's one of the people I really, really would like to meet some. I find him fascinating. He's a very, very interesting dude. And I would love to meet him. Um, and I would have loved to have met him in 97. 
but I've never had that opportunity. I don't know where this stuff comes from. Oh my God. Well, get ready. Honestly, I don't, I don't, I don't want to go. I really don't want to talk about that piece of garbage any more than well, I have to. We're going to make, we're going to make history here. You ready for this, Eric? You're going to uh, be blown away by this in a good way. On July 7th, you guys work Memphis. You draw almost 8,000 fans, just shy of a sellout. And here's what the observer says. <clears throat> it was the largest gate ever for pro wrestling in Memphis, and it was a great television show, mainly for the booking. Eric, for the first time in the history of 83 weeks, we've gotten a straightforward sentence from the observer saying that it was WCW Nitro was a great television show, mainly for the booking. And that has no more, <laughs> no different of an impact on me. If, it, it, it makes no difference to me whether he shit on a show or put one over because Dave's perspective on what great booking is, is completely worthless to me. He's a dirt sheet booker who has no understanding of television, episodic television. He has no understanding of the television industry. He's never spent two minutes in it. He's just a fanboy with personality issues trying to become important. So whether he shits on booking or puts it over has equal value to me. I just thought it was a fun little nugget. It's very rare that we come across it. So, uh, But he's not wrong because this is also the show, and it's probably one of the more memorable WCW angles, especially in the undercard and eventually would lead to a guy becoming a major main event player. That's when DDP's wearing a La Parca costume and he pins Randy Savage with the diamond cutter. Uh, this is a great angle. It's a cool little moment. He's doing awesome work as DDP. He's doing the Parca strut early on. And I think this moment does a lot for DDP. What do you remember about this? I, I remember it vividly. In fact, I think I just went back and watched that particular um, match about three months ago. And I encourage people listening to this. If you get you get a chance, you know, go to Peacock, look it up, find the episode. Because Paige just, he did a, such a fantastic job. And I remember it well because of the crowd reaction. Crowd really loved that. It was it was a great moment for WCW. It's a great moment for Nitro. You know, more than that, it was a great moment for Paige because it was another step in his evolution as a character. He was getting more and more. You know, a year prior to that, two years prior to that, Paige could not have pulled it off. He just couldn't have. He 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 would not have been able to see himself in that role, in my opinion. And he would have done it, but he wouldn't have done it well. But within a year or, or two, Paige evolved, not only athletically in terms of what he could do in the ring, but as a performer. I, I, I hate to call you know wrestlers actors because they're really not, but they really are. You know, It's just a different kind of acting. But Paige would not have been able to do as great a job with that particular role um, a year or two earlier as he did then. And it worked. It worked really well. Helped get him over. Speaks a lot to his growth as a performer. And we know that Diamond Dallas Page is one of those guys who puts a lot of work, not in just to his body of work, but also his body itself. And I know firsthand that he's a big proponent of 
AG1s by Athletic Greens. He tells me about it all the times. I know you are as well, and they are a product that almost all of us here on the Ad Free Shows family are starting to use every single day, Eric. With one delicious scoop of AG1, you are absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens. It is lifestyle-friendly, whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, containing less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals, or artificial anything, and it still tastes good. Your AG1s, Eric, I know you got them every single day. How'd they taste today before your morning coffee? Perfect. I, I woke up at 5.30, no, 5 o'clock this morning. I woke up, took my dog out, and I had my... AG1, my, I, I use I use mason jars all the time. Ooh. I've got one here in my office, my studio. I've got them strategically placed around the house because uh, I, I just drink water all day long. But the first thing I did this morning before I took Nikki outside, by the way, I took an amazing picture of Nikki. You um, did. Sitting out on the deck. That was about 5.15 this morning, and I had my AG1 sitting right next to me. And that's, I mean, it really is delicious. I start my day that way every single day. I can't talk about the product enough, the quality of the product, 75 different vitamins, nutrients, all the things that you need. It tastes great. It, And I take it first thing in the morning because it's bioavailable. When you don't have a lot of food in your stomach or other things in your stomach, you, you're basically on an empty stomach um, and you get up first thing in the morning. All those great nutrients get into your system right away. And it sets you up throughout the day. I love that. I can't, in fact, I, I was, Mrs. B and I have been using the product for six months before they came a sponsor. So that's how much I believe in this product. Athletic Greens and AG1s have more than 7,000 five-star reviews. That's more than Dave Meltzer could give out, Eric. And they're you, know what, you know what, and why that's important, and I don't mean to go off on such a go tangent ahead. on this, but it is important, you know, because your health is important. The way you feel, the amount of energy that you have, the, the clarity of thought, all the things that really determine whether you're a happy, successful person. Um, and by successful, I just mean successful in whatever it is you do. Successful in having a great family or a great relationship or whatever. But if you're not getting the nutrients that you need, you are playing the game with one hand tied behind your back. And people don't think enough about that. And even when you do think about it and you acknowledge that you need the right nutrients and supplements and all the things that you need to get to be as healthy as you can be, you can't get it from your food sources. If you look at, you know, the, the big box corporate grown vegetables and, and things, I mean, unless you're really shopping hard and you have the ability because some people just don't to buy organic fruits and vegetables. And even if it's advertised organic, sometimes you need to be careful. You're not getting nearly the nutrients that used to be in vegetables back in the day. A lot of the nutrients aren't in the, the foods that you're buying in the store that you even think are healthy. You're trying to do it right, but you're not getting enough. And that's one of the things I love about AG1 is you get everything and more um, than you need with one scoop and it yeah. tastes great. You don't have to power it down. You don't have to choke it down. I've had some stuff where you just literally, you have to be really freaking committed to get it down. I love AG1. It's a, it's a great refreshing taste first thing in the morning. Okay. I'm sorry. I just love the product. That's awesome. That's, and it's, that's a genuine five-star review there from Eric Bischoff. 
It's recommended by pro athletes, trusted by leading health experts such as Tim Ferriss and Michael Gervais. And I went, this is a shoot, I went and I read some of those reviews just yesterday, and they are very much on point. I'm in full agreement with just about all of them. And right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. Just one scoop in a cup of water every single day. That is it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. It's nice and easy, and we're making it even easier. Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do, visit athleticgreens.com forward slash 83 weeks. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash 83 weeks to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance, and we appreciate them for sponsoring this podcast. Let's talk about Arn Anderson. Arne Anderson, as we know, in 96, he has to step away from the ring. He gets some surgery done. And around this time, it's reported that he's returning backstage. He's going to be helping Terry Taylor with some of the booking. Uh, what was the mentality behind putting Arne in a creative role here? I think I, I use Arne primarily as an agent. Okay. Um, more so than in creative. And not that I, not, not that I didn't value and respect Arn's creative ability, but I don't think he was on the booking committee. Um, the re the, the, the logic or, or the decision to put Arn in a producer's role or agent's role. We didn't call them producers back then. They were agents uh, is simply because he's a wealth of knowledge, wealth of knowledge. I really, really respect it. Arn's perspective on psychology and what made a great match. And Arn had the ultimate respect from talent in a locker room. And that's exactly what you need. Somebody with experience that understands psychology, but also commands without even trying to the respect of the talent that he's working with, because if the talent doesn't respect you, it's like an actor and actress working with a director and not really paying attention to him. (laughs) How's that going to work? Right. Uh, But in a, in a wrestling scenario, if you've got an agent or a producer who's responsible for laying out a match or making sure the match is laid out properly and hits all the beats that it needs to hit, presenting it in the right framework of psychology for that particular story and ends up the way it needs to end up to advance the story that a team of other people are writing going into the future. You need somebody that has, that commands that respect and, and Arn certainly did. So that was the logic behind it. And I liked Arn. I mean, and I still do. At least I think we're friends. I don't know. I busted his chops with you. I think last week, so maybe you did anymore. You really did. But, but that was in the spirit of, of having fun, mostly just pulling your chain because you react so easily. It's fun to fuck with you. You really do like to fuck with me. That's okay. <laughs> that's that's okay. Uh, strictly business, adfreeshows.com. It's a hell of a show where Eric makes outlandish claims like that the rockers weren't over because they used to hit two balls. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> it was super good. Um, but also around this time, and this is going to be the last thing we're going to talk about before we get into the show itself, uh, you guys are letting some contracts expire there's a lot of people, they've got 90-day windows coming up, likes of Jerry Lynn, Dave Taylor, Pat Tanaka, Lanny Poffo. Uh, when there's cycling going on like this and talent are leaving your locker room, what what is the 
feel like backstage when there are either mass releases or just people leaving in mass? You know, I don't know. I did, you know, the environments in a locker room or the environment amongst talent. um, I wasn't exposed to it. Right. Keep in mind, I was the boss. So when I was backstage or if I did happen to walk into a locker room or sit down and have a, and have a conversation with somebody in the locker room, people behave accordingly when the boss is in the room. So I'm not getting the same, I'm not hearing the same conversations. I'm not feeling the same attitudes. People are, I'm going to say they're on their best behavior, but they're also not being transparent either. When, and it wasn't just me. I mean, anytime your boss is sitting in a room, you're probably not going to be as candid about things as you, you will be as soon as he or she leaves the room. So uh, I can't tell you what the, the general feeling was in the locker room or amongst the talent. You know, for me, it was always tough. I never liked cutting anybody. You know, that's another, that's another thing that I think is out there in the narratives. Bischoff just loved firing people. Like, I hated firing people. I hated it. And, but it has to be done at some point. You know, you can't just keep hiring and hiring and hiring and not letting people go. We're seeing that in AEW now. We see it in WWE consistently. It's just the part of the process and it's part of the business. And it's unfortunate, but it is what it is. I'm expecting my FedEx from you later today to get Conrad back in the chair. So. Well, Eric, I would, just, I would just fire you by email now. That's true. If I was going to fire somebody now. I wouldn't even spend the 20 bucks on a FedEx. I just send them a fucking email or maybe even just send them a direct message on their phone. Mm. Hey, dude, letting you go. <laughs> Wish the best in your future endeavors. <laughs> All right. Now I'm ready to talk about this show. Let's do it here. Bash at the Beach 96, historic professional wrestling show. We see the debut of the NWO Hulk Hogan turns. He becomes third man. That show does a 0.71 buy rate. A year later, this is reflection of how successful that angle was. 0.89 buy rate, which ties it for the best drawing pay-per-view of 1997 for WCW with Uncensored. Uh, quite, quite the year of growth. How were you feeling a year out from the infamous NWO angle? I mean, we were on a roll. Truth be told, you know, we were on a treadmill. So while I was obviously aware of it and it was a lot of, there was a lot of success. It was tremendous growth. Executives in Turner Broadcasting, at least some of them, were really excited. Ted Turner being one of them. Ted would call me, uh, Ted and Brad Siegel uh, would call me on a conference call every Tuesday afternoon about 4.30 or 5 when, when the ratings came out for Monday. And just they were they were giddy at the success we were having. And there were other executives, you know, Dick Cheatham was one. Uh, he worked in finance. Uh, he was one, and there were others on, on the Turner Broadcast corporate side that weren't a part of WCW that were genuinely excited for us. But you, you didn't really have time to dig it. You know, you didn't have time to bask. Didn't have time to even really enjoy it because you're on to the next thing. The treadmill that we were on. This is another thing that's so hard for people who weren't there. And when I say there, I mean in the office, not, you know, at ringside or sitting at home, you know, creating a dirt sheet based on what people who really weren't in the, in the office were telling you, 
But the office, the growth, as exciting as it was, was super challenging. Meaning, here's an example. We had a very, oh, God, I'm going to be kind and say really modest licensing and merchandising department. And when I say modest, I mean almost functionally non-existent. They existed technically, but in fairness to those people, they had never had the pressure or the opportunity, I should say, more than a pressure. They had never had the opportunity to kind of build out their departments in such a way that they could accommodate the growth that we were experiencing. So while we were filling arenas and we're selling stuff out, merchandise was going like crazy. We didn't have the infrastructure in place in a mature way to really take advantage of it and to do a great job with it. They were trying to catch up and it takes time to get the right people in place, to get the right systems in place. Um, It takes a lot of time and we were lagging so far behind on that side of the business. So that's just one example of, okay, selling stuff out, everything's great, but we're not taking advantage of it. So I know people outside of the business probably think, oh, I wonder what it was like in 1997. Everybody's walking around on a cloud. Uh Uh-uh. In its own way, that success created an entirely different kind of pressure. Prior to that, in WCW, the pressure, frankly, was to survive because WCW had been losing tens of millions of dollars each and every year for such a long time prior to this period that we're talking about. That was a very, very distinct and uncomfortable kind of pressure. Now we're under probably the same amount of pressure, but it's different. Now it's like, we got to catch up. We, we got we to build the infrastructure underneath this phenom that we've created. So you didn't have time to bask in the, in the glory, really. Yeah. Let's move on. It's just another day at work. Well, the show does sell out. But there's an interesting note that it takes really until the last few days for there to be a significant push to actually get it to the sellout. It it was uh, a little bit underneath it. And I find that interesting because it's clear that Dennis Rodman is a major part of the marketing here. He's a big time celebrity in pop culture. He's going to be in your main event. But uh, what is noted in the Observer is that the ticket sales really start to move once Ric Flair versus Roddy Piper is announced. And people are interested in the undercard here. This is a pretty good undercard on this show. Uh, was Rodman the draw at that point that you guys were expecting him to be? Oh, yeah. I didn't expect. Look, again, I didn't expect Dennis Rodman to have a significant impact on the buy rate or ticket sales. That wasn't the reason I brought Dennis in. I brought Dennis in. of the reason I brought Dennis in and wanted him in that position is because of the amount of mainstream publicity that we would get. I knew that every morning drive in every major market has their morning drive, you know, shock jock kind of morning show. And they, and typically those formats, they're talking, you know, and Tom Bernard used to be, I don't know, maybe he still is. He was at a station in Minneapolis called KQRS. Hugely successful 
radio show in, in Minnesota. And it was the same. It was a little bit of comedy, but it was a lot of sports. And it would talk a long time about sports, whatever was topical. And there was a, a, a Tom Bernard and a KQRS in every major market in the United States, and even some smaller mid-sized markets. Everybody had their morning shock, shock jock, sure. sports talk, rock show, right? And I knew that by bringing Dennis in, every one of those radio stations in every market in the United States would be talking about Dennis Rodman wrestling in WCW. You can't buy that advertising. We couldn't. You couldn't afford it. It would make no sense. But by bringing Dennis in and featuring him prominently and having him in the ring with, with Hulk Hogan and associating with Hulk Hogan, I knew that I would get coverage that I could never otherwise get. That's why he was brought in. Not because I thought he'd sell pay-per-views necessarily. I knew he would. There'd be some, there'd be some, you know, people that typically wouldn't buy a WCW pay-per-view that would go, I want to, there was people that wouldn't buy a wrestling pay-per-view that would go, oh, I'm going to check this out. Sure. That was going to happen, but that was incremental. Um, again, I brought him in for publicity, mainstream publicity. Not to mention, by the way, Roddy Piper versus Ric Flair on your undercard. That's a pretty significant. Uh, and, and that's just, I mean, that's a, you know, Roddy Piper, Ric Flair, that's like money in the bank, yeah. not the pay-per-view, but, but the, the fact, I mean, you know, there's a certain segment of the audience, your traditional core wrestling audience particularly people that grew up watching WCW or NWA at that time. Um, that's You could book that match once a year for 15 years straight, and that match is going to draw money. Just well, the first match on this card, Eric, was a tag team match. It was Wrath and Mortis defeating Glacier and Ernest Miller. Kind of a little breakout match for Ernest Miller and Mortis in particular here, Dave notes that Mortis continues to show some great potential and he, he puts over Miller for looking pretty good with some of his kicks in the beginning here. Uh, Glacier ends up uh, nailing James Vandenberg with a kick, but Mortis used a low to kick on Glacier to pick up the pin. He gives it two and a half stars. The match itself is what it is, but I do think it's a cool opportunity to showcase some up-and-coming talent here. Let's start with Chris Canyon here. I think Chris Canyon could have been a pretty big star in wrestling, had some circumstances, been a, a little different. What do you remember about the early impressions he was making around this time? Uh, everybody loved Chris. I mean, he was just he, – he was an amazing talent. He, he was He was fun to be around. Um, he contributed not just for himself in ways that he would benefit, but he contributed to a lot of other people. He'd work on matches with guys. He would try to, to help other talent develop, you know, new finishes or whatever it may be. He was just generally a, a really, I don't, I don't know anybody that didn't think highly of Chris Canyon. What about Ernest Miller? Ernest was a different personality. Ernest, you know, he, he was learning on the job, number one. So he wasn't the guy that younger talent were going to go to and, and look for, for, you know, guidance. Um, because Ernest was just learning the business himself at, at this point. But Ernest had a lot of respect. And 
I think Ernest's personality, because he's such a fun person to be around, he really, I, if you get a chance to meet him, go out of your way to do it and just try to get to know him a little bit. But he is an amazing guy. He's got a, he's got a fantastic sense of humor. I mean, if you're in a miserable mood, go find Ernest Miller and spend about an hour with him. You'll feel better about the rest of the day if you do. He's just that guy. He's a, he was a fun dude. And, and he had respect. You know, he, he had a little bit of baggage because I, I really, really had to convince Ernest Miller to get into the wrestling business. Now, he loved wrestling. Don't get me wrong. It wasn't that. It's just he couldn't see himself in it. And I really had to work hard to get him in. And, of course, I gave him a pretty big push as a result. Again, a green guy. You know, not a lot of experience, hadn't been around, hadn't done the indies or any of that kind of stuff. He was a he was an Eric Bischoff project. Simple as that. And with that comes a certain amount of, I don't know, jealousy, resentment, whatever, insecurity. Um, but Ernest was able to overcome that because people respected him. He wouldn't take any shit from anybody. He'd 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 have fun with you, he'd let you have fun with him, but he wouldn't let you disrespect him. And he did command a certain amount of quiet respect because he never pushed himself. He never came across as a tough guy. Ernest was one of the baddest asses in that locker room. Yeah. Not the baddest, but one of the baddest. Ernest could go. I mean, I, I, I sparred with Ernest a couple of times um, before I brought him into WCW. He was my son's martial arts instructor. And Ernest invited me to come down on a Saturday afternoon after classes were over and there was a certain group of black belts that would hang out after classes. They were the group of black belts that liked to bang around a little bit, do some of the things that you couldn't do in a class because the majority of the class wasn't up for that. Um, contact was a lot harder, um, different style of fighting. And Ernest invited me to one of those uh, after school or after class get togethers with his black belts and I trained with a lot of his other black belts. And then I got in there and I sparred with Ernest. Ernest was at that time probably 240, maybe more. But he could move when we call him the cat. There's a reason right. for that. Right. He, move, he was a 240-pound guy as a martial artist that could move like a 160-pound guy. His footwork was phenomenal. His ability to um, adapt and, and change a fighting style and find his target. His kicking ability was amazing for a big guy. Typically big guys can't kick that well. They don't need to number one, and they don't learn to as a result, but they're just, it's a lot of weight to move around, but man, Ernest could kick like 160 pounder. He was phenomenal, strong as hell. Super nice guy though. Great guy. what do you think about fact, he's coming out? He and Sonny are coming out here next weekend. They're going to be they? in Wyoming. Yeah. Really? Okay. Yeah. Be cool. That'll be cool. Introduce him to Chili Sleep while he's out there. Um, yeah. well, that's weird. <laughs> well, he's going to ask you why there's no air conditioning. So you That's gotta, really weird, but go uh, ahead. He's going to ask why there's no air conditioning in the Bischoff household. And you're going to have to explain why. So, Okay, Eric, we got to take a time out right now because it's time for wrestling fans to win with Zen. Go to wrestlingprizes.com right now to register for your chance to win one of four once-in-a-lifetime digital Q&A sessions with wrestling legends like Ric Flair, Eric Bischoff, Jim Ross, or Mick Foley. Winners also get an autographed replica championship belt and a prize pack from Zen, America's number one nicotine pouch. 
register once per day. Now through July 15th wrestlingprizes.com. That's wrestlingprizes.com. Here's a disclaimer. No purchase necessary to enter to win open to us residents, 21 and over void where prohibited for official rules. Visit wrestlingprizes.com. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Uh, what do you think of Wrath? Wrath is someone that not going to get a whole lot of publicity these days and on this show, but it, it, big dude, he could move. What ended up being his shortfall? Well, we talked about that last week, John. Um, Wrath had all of the ingredients ex- except for one, and that was his promo skill. He just... And it wasn't that he wasn't going to develop it. He just didn't have it at that particular time in a very, oh, I don't even want to say traditional, but a very formulaic kind of wrestling promo. Mm. Let me tell you something. You know, the minute somebody points into the camera when you're doing a promo of any kind, that's, that's your first red flag. They don't know what they're doing. They're doing the old school shit. Right. Um, and, well, Rath didn't—he didn't have that old schoolitis that bad. He certainly wasn't what I considered a, a, a solid promo. So we created a character around him that de-emphasized the need to talk. I didn't want to give him any dialogue until he was ready to to do it. So that was the the reason we created that big, kind of ominous, dark, brooding, quiet, powerful character. Um, and I think timing is the thing that held Rath back more than anything. I think if we would have brought Rath out along with Mortis and Glacier and everybody else two or three years sooner, that story would have been completely different in my opinion, but timing wasn't right for him, but not because he didn't have an amazing amount of talent. Very, very professional dude too. Easy to work with pros pro. The next match is one I really want to ask you about because I actually was on social media this week and I saw some video clips circulating between Chris Jericho and Ultimo Dragon. Mm. They had bouts in Japan prior to having this match here. And I saw an anecdote that Chris Jericho actually shared from Dave Meltzer, ironically, where I guess Dave Meltzer sent video of one of their matches in Japan to Paul Heyman because Heyman was interested in using Ultimo Dragon, but it was through that tape that he discovered Chris Jericho and brought in Chris Jericho to ECW as a result. And and you pair him with Dragon once again here on this show. They go just about 13 minutes and uh, it's a great match. Uh, Dave says finish was the wrestling spot of the show with Jericho going for a double arm suplex in midair. Dragon reversed it into a Frankensteiner. Jericho then reversed that into a cradle. The two shook hands after the match. And he says, for all the praise Dean Malenko gets and deserves as far as technical ability, there's nobody in the U.S. who can touch Dragon as an all-around technical wrestler. Jericho missed a few spots, but overall, this is by far his best match since arriving in WCW. Four and a quarter stars. Uh, what do you think of that assessment? There's a couple things to chew there. One, about how good Dragon was at the time. And did you feel that this was Chris Jericho's best match in WCW to that point? Oh, I don't know if I evaluated matches like that. Um, it was a great match. I loved Ultimate, Ultimate Dragon. He, he's a, another really, really professional dude, someone I'm still friends with to this day. Um, it was a fantastic match, and I think I probably acknowledged it as that internally and externally, but didn't really compare it to to other things. I just loved the match. I loved how Jericho was really, really on fire at that time and, and ascending still 
and Ultimate Dragon was just, he could work. I mean, he, he was very, very versatile. He could work with a lot of people. He wasn't just confined to a Lucha style. You know, he'd been working a lot in Mexico. I think he lived in Mexico at the time when he was working with us. Um, but also working in Japan and working here in the United States. So he had the ability to work a lot of different styles. Were you seeing the potential that Chris Jericho could be a top guy someday in the United States? I, I don't know. I don't know that I thought about it that way. You know, I didn't sit back like a wrestling fan would and, mm-hmm. and, or somebody watching the business closely and go, Oh, I think this guy is going to be a star someday. And arguably maybe I should have. Right. Um, but it, at that time, I was just grateful to have Jericho on the roster in his role, go back and look at my main event roster at that time. And, that was a hard, that was a hard main event roster to break through. Chris was still young in his career. It was phenomenal and he was growing and I saw a bright future for Chris, but I don't know if I pegged him as being one of those guys that's going to be, you know, one of the biggest stars in the business yep. someday. <clears throat> well, we know he's about to break out big time in 97 and into 98 and eventually parlay that into a career with WWE. These two were absolutely cooking Eric. There's no doubt about that. And if you want to get your weekend cooking, well, then let me tell you about one of Eric's favorite products. That's his Rectech. It's an amazing company that offers wood pellet grills fueled by all-natural hardwood pellets, along with other outdoor lifestyle products such as coolers, apparel, grill accessories, and much more. And with grills ranging from $399 to $3,000, Rectech has something for every lifestyle and every budget with a key focus on flavor, convenience, and versatility. Their factory direct pricing eliminates the middleman, and all grills ship absolutely free. Plus, all Rectech pellet grills are made with high-quality stainless steel and are built to last a lifetime. What are we cooking up this weekend, Eric? Pork spare ribs. As a matter of fact, I took them out of the refrigerator right before I came out to my studio to record with you, and as soon as we're done recording, I am going to put the rub on those ribs and I am going to do what they call a three-two-one kind of rib cook. I've never done it before. If you're a guy. Honest, huh? I was just going to ask if you're a three-two-one guy. I've never done it before, and I'm going to be really honest. I love cooking. I'm really good at a number of things, but I suck at cooking ribs. Mm. I just have never been able to get the rib that I want when I'm cooking it. So today, actually yesterday, I made up my mind. I said, that's it. I am going to perfect ribs on the Rectech. Today is the day I'm going to cross that threshold and reach that brass ring that up until now has been so elusive. Because you can't consider yourself a grill master if you can't grill and make great ribs. So I'm going to smoke my spare ribs, pork spare ribs on my rec deck for three hours at 225 degrees um, and smoke them. And then I'm going to wrap them in aluminum foil with a nice marinade. And then I'm going to cook them for another two, two and a half, maybe even three hours. And then I'm going to finish them off by scoring them on the grill and cooking them for another hour or so. And I'm going to, I'm going to videotape this. 
I'm going to post it, social media, so all of you know that I'm actually trying to perfect my rib game. I'm hoping today's the day, man. I'm going to reach that threshold. You're going to reach it because Rectech's going to help you get there. I actually just did three, two, one on some ribs a couple weeks ago, and it came out perfect. And I know you're going to absolutely nail it because Rectech has got your back with its flagship model, the RT700, coming with a 40-pound pellet hopper. That's the one I have, by the way. I don't know what you've got, but that's what I've got, the RT700. I love that grill. That's awesome. It's got 702 square inches of cooking space. The PID Wi-Fi controller and a six-year bumper-to-bumper warranty. You can bake, smoke, sear, grill, and even dehydrate on this grill all the push of a button, and that's why those in the know choose Rectech, and it's time to toss that tasteless gas grill, the messy charcoal, or even that overhyped brand name grill aside. Join an elite wood pellet grilling family by focusing on flavor, convenience, and versatility. Rectech sets the new standard in grilling, and we want to help you. Visit Rectech.com. That's R-E-C-T-E-Q. Use the code Bischoff to get 5% off site-wide. That is 5% off their top-notch wood pellet grills, one-of-a-kind Rectech Icer Coolers, chef-tasted rubs and sauces, accessories, merchandise, everything. 5% off. That's Rectech.com. Use the code Bischoff. I can't wait to see how those rips come out. You will see because I will post it on social media. Going to be stalking your social to get a good look at that. So uh, let's, let's continue to move on here. Gene Okerlund interviews Raven and Stephen Richards, who you brought in. Raven talked for the first time doing the same basic gimmick he did when he first arrived in ECW. He slapped Richards around. Richards is kind of doing the nerdy flunky gimmick he did. Uh, what do you think of their chemistry together? Great chemistry. I just think the audience didn't it just didn't resonate with our audience. Yeah. I mean, Stevie Richards, great athlete, phenomenal condition, great guy. Just it, that story, that angle, whatever, that chemistry just didn't connect, I think, the way they hoped it would, certainly the way I hoped it would. Next match, almost like a fever dream looking back, but really cool that you were able to make this happen on WCW pay-per-view. Rick and Scott Steiner defeat Great Muda and Masahiro Chono in 11 minutes and 37 seconds to earn a title shot at Kevin Nash and Scott Hall at Road Wild. Uh, Dave says it was a slow start, but it turned into a really good match. He praised the Steiners for their power moves here. He thought that they had pretty good chemistry uh we see scott use the frank i'm sure i'm sure the steiner brothers are like, oh i can't believe it this is so great dave Meltzer thinks we have good chemistry are you fucking kidding me i think he's just praising them for having good chemistry with uh muda and chono here i don't think that's he's a douchebag <laughs> i don't think there's anything wrong with that he's just a douchebag he just is <laughs> well he's praising them he says uh He's 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 pointing out the obvious. That's what he's doing. It's like, oh, you mean we didn't know that Steiners had great chemistry? Well, he's oh, saying great chemistry. Who are those two guys? Chono. Wow, they've got some chemistry. Wow. He's saying great chemistry with Muda and Chono, not great chemistry with each other. We obviously know the Steiners. I mean, we know the Steiners aren't beating around that turnbuckle, Eric. Because damn, if they were doing that, then they're not over baby faces. That's true. <laughs> Come on, everybody, cheer for me. Come on, react. Come on. I know I'm not doing anything to make you react, but come on, do it anyway, because I'm doing this. <laughs> Fucking lame-ass amateur wannabes. I'm going to fight you on that one for a while. Scott used a Frankensteiner on Muda, but Chono stopped ref Mickey J from 
uh, making the count. Jay started yelling at Chono. At this point, the Steiners did the double team spot, ending with Scott DDTing Muda off the ropes, and Jay turned around and counted as Rick pinned Muda. He gives it three and a quarter stars. A nice build here for the Steiners versus the Outsiders. This is a good win for the Steiners. And uh, I thought this was a good piece of business. What did you think of it? I loved it. You know, Steiners had a lot of experience with Chono Muda in Japan. You know, Steiners spent a lot of time in New Japan, a lot of time. Um, so they, the four of them knew each other very, very well. They'd worked together individually, probably as a team before. So this wasn't their first time to the dance. Um, I had high expectations and they exceeded them. Another match you had high expectations for were those luchadors. Juventud and Hector Garza and Lismark Jr. beat La Parca, Psychosis, and Viano the fourth in 10 minutes. This is a hell of a match. I'm not going to go through this spot for spot for spot because it is just an absolute ton of spots. But it's pretty much exactly what you would expect from cruiserweights and luchadors in WCW at that time. Dave gives it four and a quarter stars. He absolutely loved this match. Is this the style match that you're setting out for when you're signing all these luchadors? At, well, cruiserweights, of which the luchadors happen to be a part, a big part, but yes. And what an interesting contrast. And this is this was my goal, was to be able to have a, a more traditional formula of a match with regard to the Steiners, Muda and Chono. Okay, Th- that was still pretty much a, a, a match that one would expect, right, in, in terms of the formula and the presentation. The six-man you're referring to was a completely different style. Yeah. And that's what I was hoping to achieve. I wanted that contrast in style so that there was a diverse kind of palette uh, of presentation so that not all matches were some variation of a match that we've seen a million times before. I was looking for that cruiserweight division to provide that. Ooh, oh, wow, this is different. These light heavyweights, these cruiserweights, whatever you want to call them, they wrestled differently than the bigger guys. That was the goal. And the match you're talking about was a perfect representation of it. And I'm really glad, and I think it was coincidental. I don't think I created it this way on purpose, but it's interesting to have them back to back because you're seeing such a direct contrast. Well, I was going to bring that up. I think that's great producing putting it back to back. If if I were putting on my TV hat here for a second and you think about how when you're laying together a show, you kind of want things to flow into one another, but every now and then you want there to be that stark contrast because that can make one match versus the other stand out even a little more or it can help elevate the match that came before it. And I do think for the wrestling fan that's consuming that, that's a great way to A, cleanse your palate and, and B, showcase, wow, this company does have a lot to offer. And I think that underscores the quality of business that you were doing at the time. It did. It did. And again, can't say enough about this match um, and the cruiserweight division in general. It added so much. I said this to Conrad, you know, probably a year or so ago. And part of it is just having the opportunity to go back and watch the evolution of WCW or Nitro in particular. Um, And, about a year ago, I think I realized that although I've always given the cruiserweights a lot of credit, 
I think the cruiserweight division as a whole had a much more significant impact on the trajectory of Nitro and WCW as a result um, than I gave it credit for at that time. Now, looking back at the body of work, as people like to say, and just looking at, you know, the evolution of, of Nitro, um, I can see now why the cruiserweight division was as popular as it was. I, I readily admit that the crew, although the NWO is still to this day, I don't think anybody that's not drinking their own Kool-Aid would argue the fact that it's been the most significant, important storyline angle faction, whatever you choose to call it in the history of our business, at least within the last 30 or 40 years. Um, and there's been nothing like it since. That's me putting it over. But, but, Cruiserweight Division is right behind it and not far behind. I think the Cruiserweight Division really was one of the reasons that Nitro was so unique from WWE because that was the goal going in. How do I present my product differently than the WWE does? And the cruiserweight division was a radical departure in terms of presentation from what the WWE was doing on a consistent basis. And I think as a result of that, cruiserweight division deserves a lot more credit than it got for ultimately making Nitro what Nitro became. I love you. That's great. <laughs> um, let's talk uh, an interesting match in hindsight. Chris Benoit versus Kevin Sullivan in a loser must retire match. Sullivan is accompanied by Jacqueline and Jimmy Hart. Nancy Sullivan's actually on her way out of the company around this point. Uh, it's a pretty aggressive match. It's, it's mostly Imagine uh, that, right. Yeah. Right. It, it's mostly a brawl truthfully for, for the large portion of it. And they're teasing a split up between Sullivan and Jacqueline and she's not afraid to get aggressive here, which I always thought made her just one of the most badass women that ever stepped foot in a wrestling ring. And uh, eventually Jacqueline goes under the ring and pulls out a breakaway gimmick chair and she gets in the ring. She tees being undecided about what to do with it, but ultimately decides to hit Sullivan, who was yelling at her. Benoit then pinned him with a headbutt off the top rope. Uh, and the match gets three and a half stars. So Kevin Sullivan is supposed to retire here. Uh, what do you think of all of this, Eric? This is a, a lot to consume, especially in hindsight. Anything that you make of that? I never really liked the matchup. I didn't really like the story. Um, I don't know why. Uh, I mean, look, Kevin and Chris had a series of really violent, brutal matches. And there's a certain part of the audience that really dug that. I didn't, but I didn't let my taste and what I liked control everything that people saw. And I knew there's some, there's a part of the audience that dug it. So I'm going to give the audience what they want, whether I like it or not, don't like it. That's kind of the way I approached it. Um, but I was glad to see it over with. I really was. So why was it exactly that Kevin Sullivan was looking to take time off TV here? Cause he was booking, you know, it's hard to be a talent uh, and, and be in the ring and be, a, be on TV uh, while you're also in charge of writing that TV. It's just a lot. 
I'm, yeah. I'm guessing that was the reason. I don't know. I'd have to go back and talk to Kevin and try to see if there's any notes he has as to what the reason was. But I think generally speaking, that story had played itself out. We'd seen enough of it. I needed somebody who was in creative that was focused solely on creative and not focused on their own stuff. The next match is Jeff Jarrett defending the U.S. title against Steve McMichael. In about seven minutes, he wins. Jeff, that is, of course. This is uh, not a great match here, Eric. Uh, Mongo was very hit or miss, and this was uh, not a hit. Uh, Deborah McMichael is heavily involved in this match. Um, she jumps on the apron, and Jeff pulled the ref, and while the ref was occupied with Deborah, she actually gives him a briefcase, and Jeff clock Steve with it and uh, he has to hit him twice because the first shot doesn't really hit him at all and uh, it's a lot of gaga but Dave says the moral of the story in pro wrestling as a soap opera is that's designed for men and that women will always betray you in the end with your worst enemy he gives it a dud Uh, (laughs) tough one for Jeff to follow it's kind of doomed with the whole storyline all over the place well, I mean, here's here's the, I don't give two shits what Meltzer said, but here's here's what should not have happened. Okay, for sure. Following what we just saw with Benoit and Sullivan and Jackie, why would you have that match right there? Yeah, I mean, it's dumb. It's just dumb. Now. You know, you say uh, Steve McMichaels was hit or miss, and he was, but a lot of that had to do with how a match was laid out. What are we asking him to do? Are we asking him to participate in a match that's laid out in a way that someone should have five, six, seven, eight years of experience? Or are we laying out a basic match, recognizing that while Steve McMichael had certain skills and he did because he's had there are matches we've gone back and watched where it's like whoa that was a fantastic match why was it a fantastic match because it was laid out appropriately with all the gaga that i'm hearing here that's not a match that somebody with limited experience should be involved in and that match should have never been in that position that was bad formatting And you want to do an efficient piece of business, and we want to help you do that here on 83 Weeks as well, because this episode is brought to you by CarShield. CarShield makes it easy and affordable to protect your car from expensive repairs, and that's just for starters. CarShield is the number one auto protection company in the U.S. and offers protection plans for around 100 bucks a month. The plans cover more parts than ever before, Eric, whether your car's got 5,000 miles or maybe even 150,000 miles. It's so simple to get your car fixed. When you need a repair, you choose the mechanic, and Car Shields administrators handle all of the rest. They take away the headache. You don't got to deal with the paperwork. You are taken care of completely. And the same goes if your car breaks down, you're stuck on the side of the road. Plans through Car Shield also include coast to coast roadside assistance. Their administrators are there for you with rental car options, trip reimbursement. No extra cost to man. If I'm out on the road trying to make the towns there, Car Shields the right company to have my back. Here's what I like about CarShield. I have five vehicles and a motorcycle. I'm going to take the motorcycle out of the equation. I have five vehicles. Not one of them is newer than a 2009. 
the majority of them have, except for my wife's, my wife's got a really nice Mercedes, um, the 2009. Um, majority, but the, the other vehicles are my vehicles. I have a couple different pickup trucks. Um, I don't think one of them has less than 130,000 miles on it, 140. One of them has 227,000 miles on it. But I got to, I'm, I'm not buying a new vehicle. I refuse to pay as twice as much for a new truck as my dad spent on our house when we moved to Minnesota. I am not spending $80,000 on a freaking truck. That's only going to be worth $50,000 by the time I get it home or whatever. I'm exaggerating a little, but you know what I mean? Just not doing it. So what does that mean? That means I have to protect the vehicles I have. Because I don't want to have to go out and buy a new vehicle. I want to keep my vehicles maintained. I want to be able to do what I need to do when I need to do it. And CarShield gives me that opportunity to keep my babies alive. My trucks may be ugly to you. You may look at me driving down the road in my beat-up 95 GMC 2500. That's just beat up and dirty looking because Nikki likes that truck. Whenever I take Nikki for a ride, I take her in the GMC. She loves that truck. It's really her truck, but I love that truck too. And I'm not getting rid of it. So all my vehicles are protected by car shield. I'm holding on to my trucks. Well, the beauty and is my money and my money. And so I'm really holding on to you're holding on to your money because you get your coverage today. You're going to lock in your price and it's never going to go up. So as long as you own your car, no matter how old it is, you are protected from the rising cost of parts and repairs for your vehicle. Car Shield helps protect your wallet from expensive car repairs, and you should go take advantage of it now. Go to carshield.com slash podcast to start your plan and lock in your pricing forever. That is carshield.com slash podcast. A deductible may apply. Kurt Hennig. Time for him to debut officially in the ring as Diamond Dallas's page his mystery partner against Scott Hall and Randy Savage. Well, Scott Hall and Randy Savage are going to win this match after Hennig turns on page here. Hennig was supposed to go over the top rope after page was accidentally pulling the rope down, but he doesn't actually go over. He ends up shoving page and then just leaves the ring and Hall gives page the outsider's edge and Savage dropped the elbow Dave gives it half star, and he's a little critical of the way that Hennig looks here. He says, Hennig, 39, was one of the great workers of his era, but now out of action for a few years, showed up probably the heaviest he's ever appeared and looked slow and unimpressive and killed what had been up to this point a hot angle involving Diamond Dallas Page and Randy Savage. Hennig wasn't in the ring much, but his appearance as Page's mystery partner was such a letdown that there was no heat at all for the match. Part of that was due to a major mistake WCW made before the show went on the air and in television hype weeks ago. Uh, so a pretty critical assessment there from Dave about how Kurt looked. And you in the past have been criti- critical about how some guys have showed up for major matches. Tans. Uh, what did you make of Kurt here and how he looked? Oh, uh, I will, you know, I can't disagree with Dave on that one. Um, a little disappointed. I'm sure Kurt was too. Um, probably should have done something about that a little sooner than he ultimately did because he did get himself into shape subsequently. But when you know you're walking, you're going to be making your debut. That's you know, one. It's like one of the first things you got to do is get yourself TV ready. You know, and and I've been guilty of not doing that myself. Conrad and I were talking about TNA and 
what one of the things I was most disappointed in in TNA. And one of the things I was most disappointed about in my run with TNA is I was not TV ready. I had let I let myself get out of shape. I didn't look good on television, um, and that's all me, just like it was on Kurt here in '97. But Kurt did get himself into shape and and, and changed all that. But yeah, I was a little disappointed. It, it's understandable because as all the praise you had for Kurt at the beginning of this episode, where you said he's just one of the greatest in ring workers ever. He had the charisma. That's not the Kurt Hennig that we're seeing here. And it is a little disappointing, especially for a guy like DDP, who is working a great angle with Randy Savage. Do you remember there being any disappointment from any of those involved in the match? No, no, no. I'm sure the guys talk, but look, Kurt had so much respect and while he may have not, Trans made the transition all that well. He may not have prepared all that well. And let's just be honest with it here. The elephant in the room. Kurt had issues. Yeah. Alcohol and drugs were not his friend. And that probably played a a part in the lack of preparedness. Um, But, but Kurt had enough respect in the locker room and amongst his peers that it, it didn't stick with him. He was able to overcome it. What was Paige disappointed? I don't know. You'd have to talk to Paige. I, I never talked to him about it. Um, I would venture to say he probably was. Paige was a Paige to this day wants every aspect of everything that he's involved with to be perfect. Yeah. He's obsessed with it in a good way, not in a bad way, in a great way. And he was just as obsessed back then as he is now. So I'm sure he was a little disappointed, but he didn't express it to me. We discussed earlier a lot of the tickets started to move once you announced Roddy Piper against Ric Flair, and Roddy ends up beating Ric Flair in 13 and a half minutes. Uh, Dave says, by his opinion, that it's a surprisingly good match and easily the best match Piper's had since he came back to WCW, and he gives Rick a lot of credit as well for holding the glue together. Finish saw Benoit and McMichael come out. Uh, but Benoit came off the top with a headbutt and Piper moved, so Benoit hit Flair instead. McMichael then used a tombstone pile driver on Piper, but Piper kicked out of the pin attempt. Piper used a sleeper, and the ref checked Flair, whose arm went down three times for the victory. Three and a quarter stars. I want to say this. We don't see that finish enough in pro wrestling these days. The old, the arm gets raised three times, and they get they go out cold. I think that's a great way to build drama in a match. And we just frankly don't see it because we don't see as many chokes in wrestling anymore. Uh, what do you remember about this match? It, it seems like the general consensus was it came off pretty well. It did. You know, it, it, same thing, you know, with Roddy, you could get a stinker out of Roddy, depending on the way the match was laid out and what the chemistry was between everybody in the ring. Roddy wasn't that guy that was going to go out there and 99 times out of a hundred have you know, a great match again, mostly because it depended upon the story and whether Roddy was really into that story and believed that story. Cause Roddy was a method actor. Now, he was a legitimate actor um, outside of wrestling. I say legitimate. He, he acted and performed outside of the wrestling ring on the big screen. Roddy knew how to act, but Roddy had to have material that he believed in and was passionate about in order to have the best Roddy Piper matches. Now, one of the ways that you could kind of ensure that is to one way, shape or form, match him up with Ric Flair, just the chemistry, the history, everything, everything clicked. And this was a story that clicked. And this is 
one of the reasons why it worked as well as it did and why Roddy performed as well as he did in it. It was something that he could believe in. Plus, you know, you put Ric Flair and Roddy Piper in a ring together, the crowd's generally going to be into what? No, 999 times out of 1,000. It's going to work. That's what I said early on. We started this podcast. Put those two names on a card, you're going to sell tickets. You just are. You do it once a year. Nobody's going to say, oh, my God, I can't believe we're seeing that match again. They're going to say, oh, my God, I can't believe we get to see that match again. That's just the, the aura and the magic of Ric Flair and Roddy Piper. Well, it's time for our main event here, Eric. Lex Luger and the Giant against Dennis Rodman and Hulk Hogan. Lex Luger and the Giant ultimately win this match. We'll get into the semantics of the match itself in a second, but I I do want to read this praise from Meltzer, but I also went back and watched this match, and I I thought the same exact thing. And he was blown away by how well Dennis Rodman adapted to the confines of the ring pretty much from the get-go by just doing a simple arm drag on Lex and in the beginning of the match, he's in there and he's teasing that they're going to lock up for a while. It takes about two minutes for them to actually lock up because he's milking the crowd. Dennis Rodman's a showman. We know that. And he eventually hooks up with him. He does a, a, a real nice arm drag and he comes off as a star right off the bat. And he says, quote, after just a few days of practice this past week under the eyes of Terry Taylor and the WCW staff, uh, Rodman 36 was not only not an embarrassment in the ring, but actually showed far more aptitude than most trained pro wrestlers with months of training in their first match have. His offense, while limited, looked pretty decent. His athletic ability, which is world-class, he was able to translate better into wrestling than expected and was naturally his strong point with some high and well-timed leapfrog spots. His selling was pretty good, certainly for someone in their first match. His ability to work the crowd was very good as he's a natural ham and he obviously wasn't about to be intimidated because there was a sellout crowd watching him. He's used to that and his psychology was there. I agree with all that. I thought Dennis Rodman crushed it in this match and set a pretty high bar for celebrities who get involved in pro wrestling. What say you said it a million times, man. He was a, an amazing performer and, uh, and I try real hard not to be redundant because oftentimes we cover some of the same material. Um, but one of the fascinating things about watching that match for me uh, was that when we first started working with Dennis training, right. You'd, you'd be having a conversation, not me, because I wasn't the one ha- training him, obviously. But you're wa- I'm watching Dennis in the ring, you know, during a training session, and you would swear he's not even paying attention. You know, you had to look close to make sure he didn't have some headphones on. He wasn't listening to tunes instead. He just didn't seem to really be interested in anything that was being taught to him until it was time to execute it. He'd watch you do so. He'd say, okay, this is how you do an arm drag. You're going to do this. Here's your footwork. Okay, this is an arm drag. And Dennis would be standing there like he was bored to death, didn't want to be bothered. And then he would step into the ring, and he would do it almost perfectly. And that was the thing with Dennis is you could just show him something, and if he didn't do it almost perfectly the first time, by the second or third time, okay, let's move on. You know, and I think the fact that, you know, Dennis wasn't intimidated by the crowd, he, he, he certainly, you know, probably intimidated to a degree because he's doing something he typically didn't do. And there was a lot of pressure on him, but he wasn't nervous about it. And a lot of the success of that match 
and the reason why everybody was so excited about it had a lot to do with the way that match was laid out. And that had a lot to do with Hulk Hogan. Just the way you described it there, Hulk Hogan, you know, two minutes before they finally hook up, lock up, um, that's Hulk Hogan. You know, stick to the basics, that's Hulk Hogan. Um, That match was whoever laid it out, I guarantee you Hulk Hogan had a tremendous amount to do with how that match was laid out because Hulk was trying very hard to showcase Dennis, but also to protect him as we talked about earlier. It's a really cool moment when a celebrity steps in a wrestling ring and they show you that they're actually taking to it and they're Kevin doing bad money did, you know, bad money took that to the next level. Right. Amazing. But it's, and that makes that fun. When you bring celebrities in Kevin green, you know, same thing, Kevin, you know, really, really took to wrestling because he loved it and, and performed really well. Um, say what you want. You know, Stephen Michael had some great matches. He had some barn bearer stinkers, but he had some great matches in there as well. But when you see celebrities just embrace it, they're not just there to cash a check. They're there because they're having fun and they love it. That makes it fun. Yeah. Stephen Amell. Uh, there's there's been so many great ones that have come in and just absolutely crushed it and i think that is the high standard now look at logan paul logan paul comes in has his first match ever at wrestlemania and gets signed to a wwe contract after that but he's a freak logan paul's a bit, i mean he's come on how many he's logan pauls are there right he's a great athlete yeah. you know you can say what you want about him um but he is a great athlete and yeah. he's committed and that that's what makes it work and Dennis Rodman comes in here and really impresses the match itself. It's it, there's a little bit of Gaga in it. It's, it's a lot of rest holds and pretty much what you would expect from guys like this power moves, etc. cetera. Um, but you also need it by the way. Sure. I get that. Yeah. You would expect it, but that's how you keep everything under control. Cause a match can all of a sudden it can start out great when you're working with inexperienced people. I know because I was one a couple of times in the ring and you need those rest holds. You need to slow things down. Okay. Here's where we're going next. And let's launch act two. You know what I mean? Just to kind of keep it under control because otherwise, you know, energy, enthusiasm, excitement, all of that can get in the way. And that's how you avoid botches with inexperienced people is just keeping it under control. And part of that is slowing it down and getting into a rust hold. So everybody can go, okay, what do I do next? Oh, this is where we're going next. Boom. Off we go. The finish sees giant tagging in headbutts, both Hogan and Rodman simultaneously is about to pick Rodman up for the choke slam. When another sting came out, this one is Kevin Nash dressed as sting and hits giant with a baseball bat to land. Yeah, that fooled everybody, right? <laughs> <laughs> Nash left while Rodman headbutted ref Randy Anderson. Luger then put Hogan in the rack and ref Nick Patrick came out and signaled for the submission, which was the finish that made the right business sense since the next pay-per-view is Hogan defending the title against Luger. After the match to keep Luger strong, he racked both Rodman and Savage as well. Star and a half from Dave, but I don't think this one was really about the quality of match per se. You've got this big showcase of a celebrity and you do the right business that you're trying to do because you're building towards the next big pay-per-view main event match. You give Lex Luger that big baby face spot. I think that's a good piece of business, Eric. I'm glad you think so. (laughs) 
<laughs> I know you don't care about my opinion, but what do, what do you think about it at the end? It was of the a day? great piece of business. It speaks for itself. It was a fantastic piece of business. It was a it was a five star piece of business match. Uh, it was everything. It was more than what we hoped it would be, and the audience loved it. So I don't know, Dave, take your star and a half and stick it up your ass. Were you guys cognizant that night that? Man, we we had something special here. This guy absolutely crushed it, and everyone. Oh yeah, I mean, at, at that point, you know, Hulk was probably wishing Dennis would resign from the Bulls and come into WCW full time because he was a great character too. He was, gee, he was a great character. What do you think about the media and mainstream coverage of the match? And it was people? awesome. Yeah, it was awesome. You know, again, WCW three years earlier couldn't get recognition for anything that we did by mainstream media and four from the, the, the inception of WCW and Turner broadcasting up until 1994, you couldn't get anybody's attention in mainstream media. 94 that changed because of Hulk Hogan, we got a little bit and then things started eventually going our way and we were getting more and more mainstream media attention by 1997 we had a boatload of it there were more people talking about nitro and wcw in 1997 than anybody else and i'm talking about on those morning you know morning drive fm shows that were so important there was so much chatter about wcw at that point in time it's awesome especially when and, and, and here's why it's not just because of my ego but that that chatter out there in mainstream was one of the reasons why all of a sudden EA Sports was interested in WCW. All of a sudden, Pennzoil was interested in WCW. Advertisers and sponsors and licensees that we couldn't even get to return a phone call to three years prior were now reaching out to us. That was a seismic shift in the business of the wrestling business for WCW. Especially when WWF is kind of the brand name at the time, just from the years of legacy. Still are. And still is. Correct. Still are. But for the first time in mainstream, WCW is now, hey, wait a minute. There's celebrities want to get involved with this. There's some cool stuff going on. They got Hulk Hogan. They got Randy Savage. And now Dennis Rodman of the world champion, Chicago bulls wants to be there that's, that's, during that's, the season. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's some street credibility there. And yeah. that's very significant for this company. You're getting international media as well. The Japanese media loves Dennis Rodman. Uh, everyone loves to talk about Dennis Rodman and I want to ask you about his pay, because this is something that was talked about a lot at the time in the circles. And uh, Dave says that Rodman received a deal that was likely, so it sounds like a little speculation here, likely in the $1.5 to $2 million range for reportedly three appearances. Uh, is, is that accurate or is that inaccurate? Um, well, it's not accurate because we didn't enter into a three deal package with Dennis. We did the first one. It worked. We did the second one. It worked. You know what I mean? 
So it wasn't like we sat, we sat down initially at least and said, okay, Dennis, we want you involved in three pay-per-views and this many TV. We, that wasn't the negotiation. It started out as a one-off without any contemplation of doing more. And then after the success, we contemplated doing more. In terms of what I paid Dennis, um, I think the first one was a million flat uh, for the pay-per-view and his television appearances leading up to the pay-per-view. So if you do the math on that, even in 1997 dollars, it's probably substantially less than a lot of the fees that celebrity talents are getting anywhere else. Um, what did they pay Tyson? Five million, yeah. I think, is the lot. number that I. What was it? It was a lot. Yeah, I, I think it was five million. So Dennis was a bargain. If you if you want to compare and 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 compare him to other relative celebrity involvement in wrestling and Dennis was a bargain. And obviously, you know, because we didn't, we did sign Dennis as a one-off. The reason we did more with him was because it was successful and we got our, we got our return on investment and then some. That's what I was just about to ask is the buy rate and the gate. Is that all worth it? Worth giving Dennis the money at that point? Kind of going back to what I said before. Yes. The buy rate, and the gate was worth it. We made a lot of money in that pay-per-view well into the black at that point in time. WCW is well on its way to, to, to generating millions and millions and million, tens of millions of dollars in profit in 1997. Um, but my evaluation wasn't on gate and pay-per-view buy rates. My evaluation of Dennis is what kind of additional free publicity and branding did we get from, from Dennis Rodman? And my ROI on Dennis Rodman was probably 300%. So there was no question as to whether or not it was, and I'm exaggerating, it probably wasn't 300%, but it was, it was far and above a, a better return on investment than anything that I could have hoped for going in. And legacy-wise, it's one of the more memorable celebrity crossovers ever in, in wrestling history. And we know the next year, where he'd get involved and uh, actually skip out on NBA finals practice to participate in WCW programming. And it's this pop culture phenomenon. Were you ever asked, by the way, were you asked to be interviewed for the last dance documentary? Yeah. Yeah. And I, wasn't I in it? I'm not sure. I, 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 I don't remember if you actually showed up and it. I watched it when it aired. Uh, I, I, th I think I was, um, I may not have been, I don't remember, but I think that I was. And I, I, uh, yes, I was interviewed for it. Whether or not I ended up on camera or not, I don't watch back. I apologize for not recalling, but uh, it just seemed like a natural tie in there. Um, but yeah, man, a huge success, huge, huge, huge success all the way around. Great business and a, a memorable ending to this pay-per-view. All right, Eric, let's answer some fan questions here before we get out of Dodge. Uh, this is a great question that, I, it, it seems like a natural tie-in from Adam it says, would Eric have ever entertained the idea of trying to get Michael Jordan to be part of something with WCW? And uh, that just seems like a natural crossover there if he was ever interested, but the price probably would have been even more significant than Dennis Rodman. Uh, no, I, I, I think Dennis was better suited for wrestling than Michael Jordan would have been. Now, what have I, would I have turned Michael Jordan down? If his agent would have called and said, Hey, uh, Michael's interested in doing something with you guys. I would have done backflips like anybody else would, but you know, if you sit back and you really look at it, who would have had a better impact? I still think Dennis Rodman did or would. 
Here's a question from the Rosen Coaster. It's a good one too. Who? The Rosen Coaster. Rosen Coaster? All right. At kicking out two. Okay. Yes. Why did Kurt Hennig debut on Nitro a few weeks before, only to reveal him as DDP's mystery partner at the pay-per-view? As a viewer, it feels like he really wasn't the original plan for that role. And that's a fair question to ask, Eric. If, if he's going to be a mystery partner, why not just debut him at the pay-per-view as a surprise? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I hate to give you a half-assed answer like that or a non-answer like that, but, you know, it, it was there a specific reason as to why we did it the way we did it? Probably not it was probably one of those things where we laid out a couple different ideas and different ways of doing things. And for whatever reason opted on that one, there was, but there was no like uh, insightful moment or the light bulb went off in a certain way. They said, no, this is the way we're going to do it. I, I, I can't answer that. man. I just can't, I can make some shit up, but that's not who I am. Not what we do here. We enlighten. We don't bullshit. You want bullshit? Go to Dave Meltzer. You want to know what you're talking? You want to know about what really happened? You want facts and honest perspective? You come here. And of course, you read the Guy Evans Nitro book as well. Exactly. See, I've learned. I know. Have you read the book? Uh, I started reading that book when it came out, and then I got very busy with my broadcasting career and never finished it. To be completely you honest, finish it. You should I finish will. it. We're going to keep doing these shows together. Uh, it's going to it's going to become mandatory reading in the future. Okay, I will make sure that I do. Uh, to Cam Kyle says, Eric, love all your shows, man. I could and do listen to you for hours on end. Were there any complaints from any involved in the match about working with Rodman? Sometimes there are grumblings about working with celebrities. I'm curious if any parties involved here had any reservations. Keep up the great work, Easy. No, I'm going to answer that question in just a moment, but just so you know, John, I know you're busy with your career and I, I, I applaud that. I'm, I'm happy for you. Um, but the guy Evans nitro book is available on audible. Mm. So if you don't have time to sit and read, you can certainly plug in a pair of headsets while you're flying to driving to, or otherwise preoccupied with things that may make it easier for you to listen as opposed to read. Was there any questions? Was there any questions or any issues or complaints? Absolutely zero. Everybody was ecstatic. Everybody wanted to work with Dennis. Dennis was a star and it was obvious the minute he stepped into the ring. No, there was no complaints. There was no issues. It was nothing but love. We got a few questions about the set and the entranceway. Uh, Tori Amos guy. Says the bash at the beach entrance set was my favorite and gave it a distinct feel and recognition. Do you think WWE should try on a limited basis like the big four to have unique stages once again, or at least try to incorporate a design on its massive Tron? They did something similar for the NXT in your house shows. Yeah, I, I've, I've always believed now the pay-per-view business has changed a lot, like a lot, but when I was involved in pay-per-view, it was important for me at least to try to give each one of those pay-per-views its own personality and character. And we went to an, an extreme to do that. Sometimes we knocked it out of the park and other times, not so much, but I, today I just should do, I think WWE should do it today or AEW. I don't know. I just don't think it's as important anymore as it used to be, especially at WWE, because they have so many, how many pay-per-views? Well, they don't even call them pay-per-views anymore. They call them premium live events. 
how many premium live, I don't know, how many premium live events do they have? Do you even know? It's about 13, 14 a year. That's a lot. That's a lot. And set these to do it well, to do it right. Creating a set, a major set like that for a pay-per-view can be very, very expensive. And whether or not you can use that set again becomes a question because all arenas are different in dimensions, staging, fire codes, all kinds of things come into play that would make a set that worked last year at this time not work next year at that same time because you're in a different venue. So it's really hard and really expensive. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why there isn't the emphasis that they're used to because WWE used to do it too. Where'd we get that idea? Oh, we stole that shit. That's right. WWE used to do it too. But I think just as time has gone on and there's more focus on the bottom line and making things kind of plug and play, it's become less of a a priority. Let's get to one more question here. It's also about the sets. And as a TV production geek, this really interests me. And I'm curious what your response is. He says, WWE shows and pay-per-views always seem to have entrance ramp and stage on camera left. Nitro and WCW pay-per-views would alternate between left and right screen entrance ramps and stages. Was this a conscious effort made by by WCW production, rather, to be different than... Or was it simply a limitation of the arena for that show? No, it was driven by the arena dimensions, as we talked about earlier, just like the sets are sometimes. No, it, it, it was not a creative choice. It was a logistic choice. Did you ever see talent get confused as to like where the hard cam is as a result of something like that? Oh, all the time. <laughs> all the time. And I've, you know, and I've blown it too. You know, when I made my, uh, if you go back and watch, me showing up for the very first time in I WWE, <laughs> I completely dropped the freaking ball because I was so used to coming out and automatically finding that red light on my right, right? Walk down a ramp, get up into the ring. Boom. I'm over there. That's, that was a mistake that night. <laughs> and if you go back and watch that, you can see Kevin Dunn's, you know, talking to the handheld guys, trying to can't find the hard camera, that piece of shit. God damn, how many times has he been on television? He didn't even look for the red light. Oh my God. But we got, we got through it. I never made that mistake again, but um, yeah, it was a logistic choice, not a creative choice. I noticed that too on your debut. I watched it recently and I was like, Oh man, he's trying to find the hard cam. And oh, desperately. Eventually you found it and it's a memorable moment. Just as this bash at the beach, 1997 pay-per-view was very memorable. Anything else you'd like to add on this pay-per-view, Eric? No, I think we covered it pretty well. Great job. Great show. And uh, next week we'll be taking a look at the nitro the following night. And it is a big one. We got the debut of the nitro girls. Ooh, that'll be fun. Bill Goldberg. So hot. (laughs) So hot. Bill Goldberg has a dark match. Alex Wright's in action. Shavo versus Eddie. The Steiners versus Buff and Norton. Conan joins the NWO. Is Kern Hennig with the Horsemen? Hall and Six take on the Harlem Heat. And Ric Flair squares off with Jeff Jarrett. It's going to be a fun episode that we're going to cover here. Stick in with your, your wheelhouse here, Eric. 1997. So keeping you happy. Uh, fun episode, Eric. Always love chatting with you. We get to chat every single week. Strictly business on adfreeshows.com. And uh, yeah, anything else you want to tell the fine fans of 83 Weeks this week? 
check out my social media and uh, see how my three, two, one Rectech ribs come out by the end of the day. Very excited to see that. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. We'll see you next time. Hey, everybody. This is Dan Bespris, host of Fantasy NBA Today, a daily fantasy basketball podcast. We cover every box score from every game every day. Plus bonus shows on buy low opportunities, players to stash, schedule analysis, and really anything you could need to smash your league into deliciously tiny pieces. Catch the Fantasy NBA Today podcast, part of the Believe Network, on YouTube or wherever you listen.